0: You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin.
1: Hey, Power Athlete Radio, I got one question for you. Are you ready for Mr. Dave Lipson? Dave is one of my favorite people, both from a personal standpoint and as a character on the internet. He's a former professional baseball player, crossfitter, bodybuilder, and Mr. Camille LeBlanc-Bazinet, former winner of the CrossFit Games. He embraces weight training, being jacked, and has put a WWE spin on bodybuilding. But what most people tend to miss through the mirrored sunglasses, neon shirts, and jorts is an intelligent approach to adding muscle and dieting. What I want you to do is, I want you to prepare yourself by buckling up for Mr. Dave Lipson. Oh yeah!
0: Uh, what 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 the hell's going on behind you right now?
1: You mean the green screen?
0: No, the 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 awesome accoutrement with hammers, oh. bolts.
1: Oh. Uh, yeah. So we actually built a podcast room. So uh,
0: oh, that's awesome. Yeah, if I could, like, here, Damn, you look at this setup. Here, here show
1: Jacob. Screen? Can can you hit the wide? Yeah, so let's get Jacob hit the wide. So we did is... Uh, oh my
0: gosh, this is gorgeous. Okay, Cam, this is And he also right has here. an assistant, Jacob, that can hit the wide and the not wide.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, no. I, I have, uh, Jacob is like producer, video, kind of does everything. So uh, that way, way I can right? just like show up. I don't have to like fucking hit we, buttons. We need a
0: Jacob because so we Cam, do everything, but everything poorly except the bar where it's time to talk, but then we're tired. He's
1: got medieval body
0: armor. <laughs> So, like a, the I'll, history of hammers.
1: Uh, so uh, <laughs> all, um, our branding guy, um, you know, obviously, uh, like one of our taglines is be the hammer. So we yep. have a bunch of hammers, um, you know, the neon sign, and then all the things over my shoulder are all just like the different, um, I guess, icons or uh, archetypes yeah. or whatever it's called for the different programs. So there's a little carry in for it all.
0: That's awesome. Then, uh, awesome.
1: Yeah. And then uh, this table, you're going to laugh about this table. When we were in Newport Beach, I was uh, like, uh, like I always wanted to have one of these like really cool. I think they're called like banyan trees, and I'd always like looked at them on eBay, and they were always like fifty thousand dollars or twenty five. And I'm like, fuck, these things are so crazy expensive. So I was looking for uh, like a conference table, so I put it into Craigslist like conference table, and I got this like weird link, um, and I was like, "Uh, okay, so and they had pictures, and it was like a shipping container with all these like tabletops. So I called the. Uh, the number and like this kind of youngish Asian like kind of broken English is like yeah we have tables you have to come up and see them and I'm like okay so she gives me an address it's like a U-Haul like uh, places are like like U-Haul deal up in the valley in LA so these
0: tables fell off the back of a truck
1: (laughs) uh you went there right
0: so uh so
1: I drive up to this like weird like thing up in the valley, this oh, little yeah. U-Haul place. I go in and I'm like, uh, I'm here about the tables. And this kid comes out of the back and he's like, Oh, I show you table. <laughs> uh, we go in the back and there's like 20 containers that were like just kind of like positioned in the back. And the guy opens a container and there's all these tabletops in there. And I was like, Oh shit, okay. And I go through and I pick one. I think I picked it out. I was like, How much you guys want? The guy's like, Ah, oh, we'll take like two thousand. I'm like, Five hundred bucks. And the guy like looks down, walks into the the building, comes back and he's like, um, fifteen hundred. I was like, seven fifty. And he goes back and he and then all of a sudden this dude comes out, tracksuit, wife beater, smoking a cigarette, gold chain, and the guy's like, I'm and I'm like Yuri, what's up? And I was like, yo, um, Yuri, oh no,
0: this is bad, dude. dude. This- total,
1: total Russian mob yeah. stealing containers and then using these like young Asian kids to fence it on fucking Craigslist. Yeah. And I told oh, him, I was like, Yuri, uh, I know the score. <laughs> like, like, what's this going to take to do? He's like, oh, I take a thousand. I'm like, give him the money. brought the truck, loaded it up, and got nice. the fuck out of there. Yeah. And uh, uh, he was like, as we got done, he's like, "You need anything else?" I'm like, "Why are you gonna open these other containers?" He's like, "Anything." He's anything like, "Anything at all." He's like, "Tuesday, we open another container. Every Tuesday, they would open container oh and then just fence my it." God. Oh my so gosh, yeah crazy. it's a good table so i uh i love that
0: yuri thank you <laughs> yeah. oh dude
1: like it, it, it was something out of like a john wick movie with yeah, the wife i was, was, was
0: thinking john wick oh, oh
1: <laughs> yeah. dude it was like wife beater um like uh tracksuit, gold chain cigarette like the, yep. i just was like this you is
0: don't bye bye guys. Guys. seriously
1: yeah it's uh it's yeah it's Oh. That's so funny. Yeah. It's uh yeah, pretty hilarious. But yeah, we decided just to spec it out and actually like do like a nice room so we could uh you know, if we do these things all the time, so you might as well invest a little bit in it
0: and make no, it No, It's good. sweet. We, are going to, we, we end up doing a lot of ours just in our house here. <laughs> like, well, Like It's literally. the best place for it. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Kim wants to move it into the, onto the couch. I'm like, that might be <laughs> a little more comfortable. <laughs> but the subject matter we get into is kind of weird sometimes, but, um, yeah. <sighs> she's I'm, just,
1: I'm dude, you guys could do a whole spin where oh, like, uh, yeah. you, you're like, uh, sitting there in the chair with like glasses and like a lab coat. And she's like on the couch, like, uh, Dave and just do like a weird kind of uh, like doctor patient. There's no, there's no
0: filter with us, honestly.
1: Nice. Uh, dude. So how are you guys exactly, like in Florida?
0: Exactly. Oh, we're loving it, dude. It's, it's been great. Um, you know, Colorado was majestic and beautiful, but honestly we lived in the wilderness. And, um, and then, you know, when we had Zoe one, we tried to bring her back to the house, but we couldn't cause the altitude was just too much for her to handle as a, a preemie. And um, we also wanted to be closer to family, and like um, we, uh, we were like thirty minutes from a gas station in Colorado. Where, where so were you guys at? We, we were in kind of like the mountains behind Boulder, so uh, right between Boulder and the Vail Pass. Oh wow! Uh, in the Roosevelt National Forest. Oh okay. Um beautiful, you know. Like um,
1: what? What was I, the draw to live there? Just like fuck it, we want to get away. We want to like live out in the middle of nowhere and be like preppers.
0: What's? Well, so, I'll tell you what, man. Like. In uh, 2014, we went out there to visit our friends, Matt and Shuri Chan. Matt was on seminar staff, another yeah. oh, yeah. games. Yeah, great yeah. guy, great dude. Shuri, like wonderful, wonderful lady. And... uh I wanted to try to get Cammie up to altitude to do altitude training for her regional to be like, Hey, let's go up here. Let's spend 20 days training hard at altitude right before your regional. And you're going to come back down and you're going to crush it. Like, and, uh, and that's exactly what she did. She came and she, she like won every event at her regional and set all these world records. So when that was done, I was like, what do you want to do? And she's like, well, I want to go back to Colorado and continue to train there leading up to the CrossFit games. So we went and stayed with Matt and Cherie. And as we were there, you know, they um, they had very similar career paths to Cam and I, right? We, they both like worked on seminar staff, there were trainers, they owned a gym, but they lived in this gorgeous, huge house on top of a mountain with a separate garage gym that was just like so cool. And there was all this amazing hiking and biking and skiing like right next door. And I w- I was wondering, like, I was like, how do you guys afford To live like this, like not for nothing, but like your trainers, you know, like you're not millionaires, you trainers, what's going on? And, um, and they said, Oh no, 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 That's what you get out here. So we were living in San Diego and kind of saving up for our first home. And what we found out was that was like, uh, like, probably like a, like a million dollar postage
1: bunch. stamp in San Diego. You're like, oh, ah, yeah, it,
0: it was, yeah. was going to look more like a condo or maybe something east of Chula Vista, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so I was just thinking like, Oh, you want a house, you got to have at least a million dollars to buy a house. So we went and they were like, hey, check out. There's a home up up the path here that's for sale. It's like a big 5,000 square foot house with like amazing views. And I'm like, hey guys, this is like a $2 million house. We looked online, it was like 690. And I was like, oh, hold the phone. Like, this is amazing. The quality of life you get here for the dollar compared to California. And so literally like leading up to the CrossFit games, we were, somebody was filming Cami this whole time. And we were out on the deck. Matt had had like a really horrific bike accident, so he was kind of a mobile at the time. But we were sitting there joking, looking at Zillow listings, going like, hey, if you come in spots one through five, we can afford these houses. And if you come in five through ten, we can afford these houses and yada, yada. Well, anyway, she ended up winning the CrossFit Games that year. So she won on a Sunday. And on a Tuesday, right after, I was on a plane out to Colorado to go buy our first house. Oh, because I badass. was like, we're not waiting on this. Did you guys uh, take bought- like
1: the big paper check, like the massive, like oh, Happy yeah, exactly. Gilmore I check? You just handed to
0: them? <laughs> it's a big check, right? <laughs> Literally a big check. I want the big one. Um, yeah, the money. The money was in our account and out of our account like that quick, you know. Um, but we, you know, there was a home that we really liked up there. It Was this really cool house? Again, like they, they position these houses like on the side of a mountain, and this was a uh, an interesting structure that was like a big cement floor with a concrete, uh, with a steel I beams. And it was floor to ceiling windows, 360 degrees around the house. So it was like something out of like a Bond villain, uh, movie or something, but it was gorgeous. And we loved living there. And we had so much, like so many encounters with animals, with bears and deer and moose and foxes and wolves, like all that stuff just in your backyard. Um, But then when, when Zoe came, we were like, all right, you know what? I think it'd be nice to like have some more closer proximity to family or be able to like go and run to the store and grab diapers without it taking three hours. Um, and then when she had a hard time breathing, that was kind of the nail in the coffin there. So we ended up just like looking actually at Texas and Florida, we were looking at Austin and Clearwater beach. And since moving down here, dude, it's been such a, uh, uh, serendipitous, uh, you know, very lucky journey for us because with Florida, you don't know what you're getting. Like when we bought this house, we didn't, we never saw it in person. We were, it was during quarantine. We were up, you know, across the street from the hospital for the year. And as soon as our house sold, I just started looking at Zillow, like it was real estate porn. And you're like, Ooh, look, this one's got a pool and a tennis court and yada, yada. We found this amazing place not even an area we were necessarily looking it's kind of like outside of tampa right by the water in clearwater beach Mm -hmm. um but it's just like gorgeous home with a pool and a big tennis court and like a really nice you know colonial uh uh home and i was like man this looks like a country club and we went i called the owner the owner was a, a former pro baseball player too and so we hit it off instantly i was like i told him our story i'm like look We've had a really shitty year. We just got our daughter out of the hospital. We want to move down here and give her a good life. And we were able to negotiate a good price and actually get down here. And it's been, it's been awesome. Her preschool's next door. Um, The community is really cool. Like it's, it actually has a community in a neighborhood. There's a bunch of young working families and kids around and it feels good to um, actually be like part of a community where like we go and we run some free workouts on the weekends and we participate in all the local events and stuff with, with Zoe and it, it's really fun.
1: We interrupt this episode with a shameless self-promotion. Do you want to build thick, sidewalk-splitting slabs of muscle? Let me introduce you to Jack Street. Get access to the same tried and true training methods I followed during my 10 years in the NFL, all to walk into training camp at 308 pounds at sub 8% body fat. Punch your ticket to the game train and join thousands of residents already following Jack street. Head to powerathleteHQ.com forward slash Jack street and claim your seven day free trial today. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I, I like, I think we connected on, uh, I lived in Clearwater. I lived in safety Harbor and, uh, lived yeah. in Tampa for a number of years. And then, uh, when I moved, when I left, uh, Philadelphia, went back to play for the chiefs. I actually moved back to California, but when we were looking to move out of California, it was either Tampa or Austin. And, uh, ju- just because I always really enjoyed Tampa and thought it was such a cool spot. I mean, where my house was on safety Harbor, I had a yeah, view, Tampa- I, I, I had a view of the, uh, of the bay and I would just sit out on my patio and watch like lightning strike the water. And, yep. uh, it was the, yeah, no, I, I really dug Tampa and it's, um, it, it's got such a cool scene with like, I mean, at the time, like Ybor city was still pretty cool. I don't know how it is now, but, uh, there was some really neat stuff to go to and some cool restaurants and just, and then, uh, St. Pete beach and Clearwater beach. It's fucking awesome.
0: You know, the West Coast of Florida is a little different than the East Coast. Like the West Coast, you actually get a lot of like Midwest kind of people. They're a little bit more laid back. There's a lot more kind of just like blue collar working class, just good folks here. Uh, the East Coast is a little bit more like New York City and Boston. So it's a little more, you know, competitive and brash. But here, like everything is, everything feels nice and the people are very friendly and we're, we're really grateful to be down here.
1: So uh, are, are you originally from Florida? Or where are you from originally?
0: I grew up outside New York city uh, about 40 minutes outside the city in Stamford, Connecticut. Okay. Um, So, uh, you know, it it was the kind of thing like that tri-state area. I grew up as like a hardcore Yankees fan and a giants fan and um, you know, like uh, New York, it's got a real, it's got a, it's got this very like pervasive vibe in that whole area. It's got that vibrato, you know, like that Jersey shore kind of feel.
1: Oh yeah. No, I did. I, you know, living in Philly, I coming from California, like it could not have been a bigger culture shock, but, yep. uh, I loved it. I did. I just love the, uh, the raw cheesy nature of
0: shit. Yeah, I'm, t- I'm telling you, like it's 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 a trip. And when I was when I was young, I, I like growing up where I grew up, but I, I did have like a strong desire to to leave and go see the world. Like my dream was always to like go and live in California or Florida, mostly because that's where the best baseball was. Mm-hmm. And uh I wanted to I wanted to compete against the best, best players in the country and you know, like have that experience, be able to like play ball year round and all that good stuff. So um when I was when I was 18, that was that was like the first time that I left, you know, the, the Northeast and I really never came back, uh, after that.
1: So what was your baseball journey?
0: So, I mean, um, I love baseball, (laughs) like it it was always that thing for me. That was kind of my anchor and, and helped shape my identity. When I was really young, uh, my mom and I were in a really horrific head-on car accident. I was like five years old she fell asleep at the wheel and we were in this Azuzu and she went head on with a minivan. And uh, this was right before I was supposed to start kindergarten. And uh, you know, we were in the hospital for like two weeks and uh, eventually like we got out and I went to start school that year, but I didn't, I didn't talk. I was like the teachers thought I had autism or something. So they pulled me out of school They said, Hey, we think something's wrong with Dave. Um, and I had a, like a, a lot of PTSD from it. You know, it was just like a little kid. Um, so it took me a while to find my confidence and sports was where I found it, you know, like, uh, I was always kind of scared and shy, but when I was, um, you know, in PE class or, you know, on the baseball field, like I felt really strong and confident and like I could be myself and it was like a totally different person. So I really fell in love with baseball because it helped me find myself. And, uh, you know, like I, I, was a good, I was a good athlete, but I in particularly excelled at baseball. And so, uh, you know, I went and played in college and was lucky enough to start playing professionally. And during that time of going from like, you know, a little kid to high school to college to pro, I was able to kind of, you know, take those uh, the, the, the skills I learned on the field, like how to be a leader on the field and just started to find more confidence outside the field. And so it was it was. Um, it was really probably one of the most important Journeys of my life is like kind of finding myself through sports and when you do it like that you're you're always you're always an athlete you know like you always identify as an athlete I find so much joy in like using my body and being physical and um and moving that I it's something I know I'm gonna do every day until I die but you know you know this like when you when you play a, a competitive sports career especially at a high level it's usually a It's like a, just a short window, you know, like you get a X amount of time, depending on the sport might be longer or shorter, but, um, and when you're in it, you think it's going to last forever. Right. Um, but then one day it comes time to move on, you know, hopefully it's on your terms. Sometimes it's on someone else's terms. But, um, when I started getting closer to my thirties, I just started getting the urge to try to establish more roots and think about maybe like what I wanted for the rest of my life when my baseball career was done. And so the friends that I played college ball with, they had all started to establish careers and families and homes and I was still like on the road at the Howard Johnson hotel, you know, getting ready for the doubleheader on Saturday or whatever. And um and I thought man, I'd like to see if maybe I could you know, start to establish more uh consistency somewhere because I I traveled year round. Like I played my pro career usually February through September. And then I'd have a little break and then I'd go play in the winter too. And I'd go play in, in the Caribbean or in Australia or somewhere. So I never really stopped moving. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so I thought, you know, towards the end of my career, I experienced, a an arm reconstructive surgery They call it Tommy John. They do like a transplant of the yeah. ligament in your elbow. When you blow out that tent, it's kind of like the ACL of the arm. Oh yeah. And, um, and when that happened to me, this was, uh, I think it was like four or five years into my career. Um, I was thinking, man, like, I don't want to lose baseball. Like, I baseball is who I am. You know, I was like holding on to it so tight that I thought if I'm going to have this elbow be my weak link, I'm going to have to make everything else as strong and as formidable as possible to make up for it. And that really got me into training. And I instantly fell in love with it, you know, that that very equitable relationship where you get out exactly what you put in. you know, like I always thought of training as like punishment or conditioning is, you know, punishment, but I actually found that when you when you really go in and you attack the training hard and you're doing things, you know on purpose, with purpose and consistently, the fact that you get to wear that work on your body and see the results is, is, uh is, is an awesome experience. So I really fell in love with that process of like going into the gym and I wanted to be the strongest guy in the organization. And towards the end of my career, a lot of the other players in the team were wanted to do what I was doing. So like, Hey, you know, take us to the gym, show us your routine, put us through some training. And I was, I was training people without even knowing it. They were just like jumping into my sessions. We we're having these bro sessions on the road and, um, but I really like that. So I thought maybe I'll explore that. Maybe I'll become a strength and conditioning coach after I'm done with baseball and I'll work with athletes. I know what that's like to, to, you know, have that pursuit of, of, you know, that expression of elite athleticism. And so maybe I'll, I'll try to do that. So I studied up, uh, for my last year in pro ball, when I was on the bus, I would spend all my time reading this big thick book called the essentials of strength and conditioning, which is the textbook you need to read to get your certified strength and conditioning specialists accreditation from the NSCA? This is kind of like the gold standard to, to become a strength and conditioning coach at a high school or university or a protein. And so I studied for it, you know, got, got my accreditation and the next year um, I had a choice to make, like, was I going to go back and play another season of ball or did I want to try to um, maybe try training a little bit? And um, in September, I took a job in New York City, just like at a regular gym, training training folks. And by February, I, I really came to the conclusion that, you know, I this has a lot of steam. Like I, I saw my potential for it and I thought, man, I could really make something out of this. So I didn't go back and play. And from there, it's just been a long journey of learning and coaching and, you know, uh, trying to um, create communities and experiences that are meaningful to people you know that that to me is the most exciting thing is getting the opportunity to put your your thumbprint on something and impact somebody's life and and be able to sometimes you know even change the course of 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 their future this episode of power athlete radio is powered by train heroic the most immersive strength training app experience on the market
1: we've built our online training business by partnering with train heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like jack street field strong and grindstone to learn which power athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathlethq.com slash
0: training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash power And now back to the show. So with uh
1: <clears throat> like um at the time you were playing pro baseball, I mean strength conditioning was probably pretty prevalent. And I remember, you know, watching like McGuire and those guys, you know, the Bash brothers and fucking just dong and balls. Uh, it was pretty amazing to see those guys and the physical development that they have. Was that impactful for you? I mean, had that kind of bled down into your deal? What was happening in the majors in that in that way?
0: Absolutely. Like right around um, after the strike, I think the strike was in 1994. Yeah. Um, baseball was at like an all time low like the attendance you know the the sport in general it was kind of on the downturn and the home run race really like it, it was breathing a new life uh of excitement and creating a whole new base of fans that were excited to see major league baseball all of a sudden you know you started seeing these absolute monsters uh going out there and and uh you know hitting bombs and throwing hard and and all this stuff and um in retrospect, when we look back at that era, we realized that that was kind of like the steroid era for baseball, where all of a sudden, you know, the, the PED use started becoming kind of rampant, like very widespread, mm-hmm. and, um, and and kind of became commonplace. And, um, you know, you can say what you want about it, but it was great for the sport. All, you know, it brought so many fans into the sport. Um, it really created a lot of excitement around baseball. And uh, it wasn't until like Jose Canseco wrote this book called Juiced where he really exposed what a the fucking of piece of shit. In, in baseball. What a fucking because piece of I, shit.
1: let's just I fucking, know, I, I, you know, uh, I, I, first of all, dude, I despise people that write tell all books, yeah. And uh, the fact that he threw all of his teammates and friends and everybody under the bus like that, dude, um, yeah, I.
0: It, it was it was interesting to me. I can I see I really see and understand like both sides of it. I think S-S-S Jose Canseco because he was such a visible character. I mean, he was huge. He was yeah. enormous. He looked like a pro wrestler, you know. Um, and he's just hitting 500 foot bombs. And he popped a few times. I don't know how he got caught, but he got caught a bunch of times with steroids. And he was kind of like very singularly focused on as the steroid user in baseball. And I think his thing was like, yo, I'm not the only one doing steroids here. This is, you know, all you people who are pointing fingers at me. It's like, this is all your, all your favorite heroes. They're out doing it too. But at the same time, it's, it's a kind of thing like baseball is a brotherhood. Um, like, like a lot of communities. Right. And sure. you don't, you don't uh, rat out your brothers um, because it was a good thing for, for everybody. It was a good thing for the teams, for the owners, um, you know, and, and I think, you uh, what you'll find is that in most sports and endeavors, all these things that seem fantastical, that seem like they're too good to be true, they usually are, okay? <laughs> like, like let's be honest, like Rocky was on steroids when he yeah. was fighting the Russian, probably more than Drago, even though they were painting him as the steroid user. Yeah. And it's it's just a part of sports at the highest level. People try to mitigate it and they try to control it, Um, But it's this really interesting conversation. Honestly, I think that like, you know, uh, there there are always two sides to the coin with, with, with that stuff. So, you know, after that book came out, there was this political parade around steroid use in baseball specifically, which is funny to me because I think there are probably a lot of other sports that it's way more rampant in than baseball, but nobody even talks about it. Um, But they focused on baseball and they did these congressional hearings and it was a real circus kind of shit show. And there's a scene with Joe Biden, okay? Our current president yelling at Mark McGuire. (laughs) I can't, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. He's yelling at Mark McGuire, saying that Mark McGuire is the reason why he didn't make his college baseball team. <laughs> Go look it up on YouTube. It's unbelievable. No, I mean, oh, it's, man.
1: it's, uh, yeah. No, well, first of all, Biden's insane. And second I know, of all, it's, it's uh, the
0: most crazy well,
1: thing. Well, what, I mean, uh, it, like, what year was that?
0: 2003.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, like, you know, when they basically paraded everybody out in that, um, in all those hearings, dude, you almost have to think about, like, what was happening at that time in the country that they were trying to divert attention away from. But, oh, man, like, uh, I remember watching yeah. all that stuff and just being horrified for those guys. And um, Canseco coming out and writing that book, I mean, I think he got popped, though. Didn't he get, like, pulled over for drunk driving and they found it in his car? Like, it was something weird. Like, he ended up getting popped in kind of like a... Well, nut, like- you
0: know, sometimes there are things like when you when you abuse steroids it's likely that you're not exclusively a steroid abuser a lot of the guys that abuse steroids are just Flat out drug abusers, too, and substance abusers as well. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, you, you could kind of the guys who tend to get in trouble like that. Sometimes there's like, oh, a domestic abuse issue, or they're getting drunk, or they're, you know, like they're combining it with, with all this, these recreational drugs, too. And it ends up just getting folks in trouble. I think that may have been a little bit. It was kind of, you know, Jose could say it was a party guy. Uh, he loved the girls, loved to party. Like, and so that kind of goes along with it, I think. And that's why maybe he was singled out so exclusively initially. Um but they paraded these guys in front of Congress. And what is really um disappointing is like you had guys like Rafael Palmero mm-hmm. uh and uh not Mark McGuire. Uh, but, it, uh, it was
1: Sosa Maguire Palmero Sosa
0: McGuire Palmero and and Kirk Schilling. Yep and, and yeah, yeah. these guys I think this is a very common reaction. I know if you've seen it in other sports, but they're adamantly denying I've never used steroids. It's disgusting. I would never touch it. And then like six months later, they test positive. Mm. So this happened with Palmero. This really, cause he was kind of like a golden boy. Yeah. Uh, and like the spokesperson uh, for Viagra, <laughs> but uh, as he got older, you know, he's, he was just an amazing hitter. Like no one can take that away from him, but um yeah, he was one of those guys who's like an adamant denier, and then he got caught. Same thing with like Kurt Schilling, you know, and uh, and and he popped. Andy Pettit, uh, the spoke a spokesperson for the Church of Jesus Christ in Latter Day Saints. He he got popped, and I think like I, I think people they like to throw it all in a bucket in the same bucket and just think, ah, oh, they're, they're cheaters. I think you realize like everybody at that time was, was using steroids and everyone focuses so much on like Barry bonds. Yeah. And when I see him, I'm like, this is incredible because even in an era when everyone else was on the sauce, he was still that much better, you know? Um, but, but they don't get, you know, they don't get credit for that. They just want to put an asterisk with it and cancel culture them or whatever. Uh,
1: uh I mean, um, that era in professional baseball will always have an asterisk. Like the one thing that blows me away, different than and well, baseball is different than football. But uh, people are obsessed with statistics and comparing different eras and this. And these guys love to put asterisk always associated in their whole deal about keeping people out of the Hall of Fame, like Kurt Schilling. Um, you know, so so these guys will never get to the Hall of Fame because of this asterisk in the time in which they played.
0: Yeah, and if you look back, you know, through history, like. You know what's that saying if you ain't cheating you're not you're not trying? Like if you look back <laughs> at baseball history, guys had always f- tried to find some way to push it a little bit, right? Whether that be like the spitball or uh the pine tar on the bat or whatever, like they're always trying to push the limits to see what they can get away with um on the field and uh and but for some reason the idea of the PED is like where people draw the line. They're like oh no, that's like a uh, you know, a, a mortal offense, um, but it's really the same as anything else. You know, people, you know, you go, you 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 watch somebody go step in the batter's box. The first thing they do is they start trying to kick the line out of the back of the batter's box so they can stand farther back in the box sure. than, the, than you're really supposed to. Right. It's the same thing. So well, they're just they're just pushing the limits there.
1: What about Houston and their whole scandal? Um, Ev, um, Evan Gaddis is a buddy of ours and uh, he's like, it's it's unbelievable wherever he goes, anytime he pops his head up somebody comes out about their cheating scandal.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think that's the same thing. I mean, just the fact that they were cheating in a little more sophisticated way when, you know, like when, when you're playing baseball and you have a, bat, a, a batter up and a runner on second base, the runner on second base is trying to signal the batter what's coming because he has a look at the catchers at the catcher's signs, right? The fact that these guys were able to use a very sophisticated trash can technique—like yeah. <laughs> think about that—bang, bang, bang, the curveball's coming, right? Um, but you, you know, I think it's just they were just a little bit more. Blatant, they tried to push it a little bit, maybe more than some of the other people. But it's not something that was like exclusive to them, like everyone in baseball and probably everyone in sports does stuff like this. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of, of you know, the, or, uh, the parenting organization like Major League Baseball or the NFL or the NBA trying to mitigate it. But you're not going to ever be able to ex- keep it out. There's always going to be some element of that in sports. That's just the nature of competition. Right. I mean, there's always going to be some guy that's going to throw some sand in Jean-Claude Van Damme's eyes so he can knock him out during blood sport. That That's just how it happens. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's just uh, it goes hand in hand with, with competition at the highest levels. Those guys are ultra competitive. They're getting paid to win. You know, it, it's a business and they do what they need to do to get the job done.
1: And it's so many games. I mean, that's the interesting part for me. I mean, we played 16 games in a season, you know, preseason. We had, you know, 22 and then you might get four or five playoff games, you know, four playoff games. So most 26 games in a year. Um, Now all of a sudden, like, I mean, what is it like, you know, uh, 162 games or, I mean, like it's, it's insane the amount of games that they play in baseball. And then, uh,
0: it's a grind. It's more competitive than it's ever been. You know, what's, what's really cool about baseball is as you watch its evolution, Baseball used to be uh, very much just like a skill sport, right? So you you didn't have to have imposing physicality. If you did have imposing physicality, you'd probably stand out very much and end up as a Hall of Famer, you know, where people talking about how strong you were, you know, and and this and that. But now – Everybody is a monster. And as it's evolved, so has the knowledge of training and nutrition. And they've let go of these old archaic principles where like when I was playing ball, like pitchers wouldn't lift at all. Like you really wouldn't lift. You do some rotator cuff exercises and run some poles and do some ab work. And now just by introducing um, you know, pitchers to some of the basic analogs to velocity, like being able to trap bar deadlift 500 pounds and be able to split squad this much and be able to do this many weighted pull-ups at this kind of load. They're able to create um, athletes that consistently can perform at a higher level and express more power. So like you see the arm velocity, like, you know, if somebody was throwing hundred miles an hour back in the early two thousands, they would have stood alone in major league baseball. Right now, there's a handful of guys in every organization that can do that, probably maybe a dozen of them. Right. Um, In in each organization. Uh, Same thing with like um, the way hitting is evolved and their knowledge of like launch launch angle. And, you know, the the, the sport is evolving along with the sports technology that's creating this kind of freak level athlete and, and it's doing it for. For people who maybe they're not naturally just born like that but they can train themselves into those capacities
1: yeah no we went to a Dodgers game um, with my brother and my nephew and uh, I was blown away at how big all the players were they all look like uh, linebackers for the NFL yeah like, like every one of them was like 6'2 6'3 6'4 I was like god damn these are all big dudes
0: well I think it's just kind of like knowledge of of what actually goes into those kind of capacities right so like scouting scouting used to be the kind of thing where they would say like oh this guy was just born with the ability to throw really hard like he's god-given talent and you know what for some people they they are have that god-given talent but now you can also take someone who's pretty good and turn them into an amazing athlete with the right training nutrition and, and and knowledge of movement um it's just like it's demystifying what it is to have that God-given talent. It's like, what does that actually mean? Why can that person create that kind of velocity or that kind of bat speed or that kind of running speed, as opposed to the other people. And once you can identify all those analogs to that, that kind of, um, expression, now you can find out, well, where are you weak and what do you need to work on to be able to get there? Um, whereas before it was just like, you either had it or you didn't, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and now that, that whole sports science thing has really evolved it. And, and it's cool. I mean, I, I like seeing guys throwing 100, 100 miles an hour, 105 miles an hour. Like, that makes me super excited. I love seeing guys, like, punching balls 6,000 feet. Like, that that makes the sport really exciting to me. Um, but I think when it comes to maybe, like, the kids especially, um, you know, the the players, they, uh, they almost look like superheroes to the kids. And so naturally they're going to idolize them and want to be like them and do the things that they do. And I think part of it is controlling that message to the kids um, and and respecting that kind of power and influence you have over the youth of like, you know, obviously you don't want to um, be be labeled as a cheater or be um, showcasing poor life choices for for kids who are so uh, easily influenced.
1: Uh, we used to, when, when I played for the Eagles, uh, every Monday night, we would go up to New York city and we go out and hang out, um, a bunch of Yankees guys and end up at the China club more than a few times. And those dudes were all hard riders. Every one of those guys. Uh, I always said, dude, uh, baseball players are party football players under the fucking table. They were just professional at it. They were so much better. <laughs> like, uh, like we went out with Giambi once and I was like, this dude is an absolute savage. So he drank every drink. I mean, like I, I yeah. Like, unbelievable.
0: I think it's just part of the culture for some reason. Um, one, because the season is long and hard, right? And, and and so it is a daily grind. And there also is that um, they almost kind of romanticize the idea of, like, when you hear a story like uh, David Wells went on a bender the night before and then threw a perfect game the next day, you know? Like, that's kind of, like, part of the mythology of, uh, of, of being a baseball player. It's like you get these – stories from the road or whatever. Everyone's got them. You know, I got some fun stories about like uh, we would go, I remember when I was in the South Atlantic league and um, one night we went out after the game you hit up like a local Applebee's or something. And maybe you meet some of the, 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 the local communities. And, and <laughs> one of our players went home with a lady, like disappeared, came back the next day, the bus is leaving. He's like running up to the bus. He's got cuts all over his legs and he looked like the movie saw. We didn't know what happened to him. He went home with this uh lady who apparently was just nuts, like a full-on crazy, psychotic lady. And he was so scared that he bolted out of her um her bathroom window to escape, to escape her and <laughs> cut up his legs. He's like, what the just fuck happened? Dove out the uh, fucking but, window. You know, that's that's part of uh, you know, it's part of the culture a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just like went free just like it was like I'd rather go out through the window than have to deal with this girl right now. Um and uh yeah, I mean like listen, that's that's part of the fun of being on a team too, you know, like a baseball team, the camaraderie you experience in the locker room on the road. Um, it, it's the stuff where you create these lifelong bonds with each other. And when I look back at my career, that's what I remember the most is not like the wins and losses or what game I perform better or worse in, but like the having fun times with my teammates on the bus and getting carried away and feeling like you're part of a group um, because you you are very much alone. Like when you're, when you're a pro baseball player or football player like it's you guys against the world everyone's trying to you're all trying to make it and um the only thing you have to rely on is each other so uh you, you create really strong bonds
1: so once you retire or i i guess came to the end of your career and you decide hey i'm gonna go uh, become a strength coach you're working in new york city training people like what was the avenue to get you to crossfit and then obviously you know competition and then seminar staff and then that's how we connected
0: yeah so i mean um I I had to get rid of baseball entirely when I left. I don't know if you did the same thing, John, but I couldn't see it. I couldn't be around it. I didn't want to hear about it. I just needed like a, it's like a breakup. Like you need a clean break for at least a period of time to go through those 12 steps before you're ready to actually really move on. And I saw it with myself where, you know, some of my teammates who didn't leave on their own terms, you can easily get stuck in that, you know, in your career and, and have a really hard time moving forward. So I needed to kind of cut it out completely Um, and I got into training and as I was, you know, training, I I had a a fellow trainer at the gym I was working at that she was a a former bodybuilder and she liked to do, I love to do like the heavy lifting stuff. So I was doing all the kind of core power lifts and things like that. And she was saying like, Hey, I want to show you this workout. It's called CrossFit. It had some gymnastic stuff in it. And it was really fun. I was like, "Oh, this is cool!" And as we started trying to follow it and train together, we realized we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Like, we'd never heard like, "What the hell is a kipping pull-up?" Or, "I don't understand. What do you mean?" Like, we we hadn't really these movements to us weren't commonplace. So we found an affiliate in Manhattan. It was like CrossFit NYC is back in like two thousand seven. Yeah. Um, and we walked up in the garment district uh, in this like beat up building. I remember going up this like metal staircase to this room that would look like uh like the room had hepatitis or something. It was like nails coming out of the wall, broken sheet, sheetrock everywhere. And like there was blood on the floor and just like homemade equipment. And I was like, Fight Club. Is this really a gym? Is this like a closet somebody had recently cleaned out? The gym we trained at was like pristine, like marble floor calibrated machines with upholstery clean. And this place, I was like, this looks like we're going to get hepatitis in here. (laughs) Like what's going on? And so they put us through this workout. Uh, It was, it was called Fight Gone Bad. It's, you know, really popular CrossFit workout. And we, we did it. And, um, and at the end, the coaches were like all excited and they're like oh you guys need to compete in the crossfit games and i kind of laughed a little bit i'm like hey man like i'm a former pro athlete like i'm not trying to be the best exerciser in the world i just want to <laughs> just want to get my pump on and you know feel good what uh, was
1: that uh danny mcbride in um uh god what is uh, uh yeah he's uh, down it down yeah yeah he's like yeah. i ain't trying to be I'm the best to, at exercise
0: to, yeah exactly i'm not trying to be the best at exercise like i'm just i'm just uh i'm just you know trying to trying to look naked and feel strong. Uh, And even to that day, that's kind of where I'm at now, you know? Sure. Uh, But uh, they told us about that competition. And that summer, right when I was supposed to be in my season, um, my birthday was coming up and I decided for my birthday, I was going to go and visit some of my teammates in California because they were on the road. And I was like, I want to catch up with these guys. I'll go see a couple games. So I flew out to California. I was kind of like driving up the coast in the, in the California league, just like hitting up stadiums and meeting up with, uh, with some of my old teammates. And, uh, and I realized I was like, Hey, I'm kind of getting up in the San Francisco area. I remember they said there was this competition going on up here. Maybe I'll check it out. So I looked it up, found out where it was and drove to Gilroy um, to the CrossFit games that year. This was the CrossFit games in 2008. Oh, and, the first thing I realized, I was like really confused if I was in the right spot, because when you say competition, I think, oh, is this going to be like in a gymnasium? Is it going to be like a powerlifting meet? Is it going to be on a stage? Like, where is it going to be? It was literally in like a dirt patch yeah. in the middle of nowhere in, in California. As we drove up to Dave's ranch, I was I was sure. I was like knocking on my GPS. I'm like, this can't be right. I got to be in the wrong place. And uh, I pull in and the first thing I see is like all these Hummers parked on a hill. Like all these, these Hummers kind of like lined up and uh, and and then a bunch of people. And, and on the Hummers, there are all these like gym names like CrossFit Overload, CrossFit this, CrossFit that. Um, and I walk in the front gate and the lady at the front gate, I'm never gonna forget, this is the most uh, uh, memorable question I've ever had in my life. I walk up to the gate, and she goes, are you a spectator or are you a competitor? And I was like, I was, I just went up to see the competition. I wasn't thinking like I was gonna do anything, right? But she asked me the question and I kind of got like a little red in the ass about it. I'm like, I'm a competitor. Like I'm here to compete, you know what I mean? Like what a deep question that is. Are you a spectator or a competitor? And I'm like, I'm a competitor. So um, I ended up just like walking in. You could sign up for like any heat you wanted so, this is what you did, John. Yeah, like no, a, I, every, yeah. I, I was
1: fucking there. I, um, yeah, no, I mean, that's the way the story you, goes. You could
0: sign up for any heat you wanted. And the whole thing, the whole thing looked so fucking crazy to me. But like, it looked like chaos. You know what I mean? Like, cause I came from that world of traditional strength and conditioning. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, there are all these people training way too hard in the middle of a Terry Patch. And, um, as I went through the weekend, I started, you know, meeting more and more people and a lot of folks, I didn't even know who they were that were, you know, important figures in the organization. Um, and I was ended up sitting on a bleachers talking to Dave saying like, oh yeah, you know, i come from New York. I used to play ball and never, I'm going to try this stuff out. It was like, literally like my third CrossFit workout I'd ever done. And so I did the competition and in that competition, I just as I met people, I saw myself in a lot of, a lot of the athletes. I was like, "Yo, this is like a former competitive athlete who likes to push themselves and train hard. They're part of a community. Just like, I love being part of a team. And, um, I really enjoyed it. Dave invited me out to dinner that night. And we went out with like Mark Ripito, coach Bergner, coach Glassman, and a couple other HQ people. And I just remember like, uh, hearing Mark Ripito rant and rave about stuff. And I'm thinking like, who is this crazy guy? Yeah.
1: He's he's still rants and raves and is still crazy. Yeah, He's just ranting
0: and raving. I'm like, he seems really angry. I don't know why. (laughs) Uh, And then I thought coach Bergner was coach Glassman. I didn't even realize like coach Glassman, you know, doesn't really look like an athlete um, that he was kind of the founder of CrossFit. And, um, and then, you know, I, I hit it off with, with Dave, you know, we, we still have a decent friendship to this day. And, after leaving there, he's like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll uh, set you up. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll gift you a level one, come to the course and learn more about it. So I took my level one and then I ended up interning a little bit. And then from there, it was like a decade of working for CrossFit and teaching courses and competing in CrossFit myself and coaching athletes to compete. Um, and, it, it, you know, I'm, I feel really blessed because, um, you know, that that gave me the platform and the opportunity to really develop as a coach Um, and to establish really what I think is so valuable in training, which is establishing your own methodology, you know, establishing your take on this stuff and, and, uh, and what you want to bring to the table as fitness evolves, you know, you can be part of that really beautiful tapestry of physical culture in some way by coming up with your own thing. So I'm really, uh, I'm really grateful for, for all my time there. And, you know, I met my wife through CrossFit. Um, A lot of our friends, family, social life, careers, you know, started right there. So I feel nothing but gratitude towards the whole organization. And now even, you know, with my company, Thunderbro, uh, we have a close relationship with CrossFit. We go to the events. A lot of our athletes are CrossFitters trying to fix themselves up and, you know, figure out what the next step in their journey is. So I think it's something we'll always be attached to.
1: Yeah, no, um, dude, I know exactly what you're saying. I was training to go back for my 10th year in the NFL and uh, I was – training like I was living in Newport beach and I kept driving up or so every day I would drive up to athletes performance up in Carson, which can be anywhere from a, you know, 30 minute drive to like a four hour drive, depending on LA traffic. And I just got kind of burned out on the drive. So I'd go up there a few days a week and then I was Googling, looking for a gym. And it turned out that there was a gym around the corner for me that had bumper plates. I think I by like Google Olympic lifting and that was CrossFit Newport. So I went up to this like hole in the wall, uh little gym and asked them like, Hey, is it cool if I come in and use your equipment? So that was kind of how it started. And then they, were, I was like, you know, what's this thing that you guys are doing? And then uh, that's how I ended up at the – at uh, uh, was at the level one. So then I started kind of training there and going back and forth. And I think it was like maybe like a few weeks before I was supposed to leave for training camp, they uh, uh, Dave and, you know, the powers that be reached out and said, hey, would you do this thing called the CrossFit Games? And I was like, I, I don't know what this is. And, and then they were uh, – I, th- I forgot how it all went down. But basically they were like, hey – would you come do it? And after they asked me like the third time, I was like, yeah, fuck it. We're just going to go work out. Like, I can go work out, and I'll fucking kill these people. And then they sent a camera crew, Savan and those guys came and recorded a bunch of workouts, and then we went out there and did it. And then I went to training camp a week later after that, and uh, I was a fucking mess, dude. I was so tired. I mean, we're, like, running up through the hills. As you know, it was terrible. Yeah. Um, but it was, a, it was a fun experience. Oh, it was, it was brutal. Like, Every be, year it got
0: more and more brutal.
1: Oh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, it, like it, like it's evolved to like where I watch it now and I'm still uh, like um, I, th- I think people have to disassociate like the, the perception of CrossFit from like the CrossFit games and what it's done. I mean, I've always said, you know, Glassman and CrossFit did more to put barbells in people's hands than any other human being on the planet. So like whether or not you dislike CrossFit and, you know, Glassman is a completely different polarizing figure and Dave is too, like you almost have to separate those people and, you know, people because of their dislike for those individuals, like tint the fact that CrossFit like revolutionized training and Dave's success in his, I mean, really the CrossFit Games was Dave Castro's, you know, I mean, he, he quarterbacked that thing, grew it into what it is. I mean, so to say that that CrossFit Games isn't a result of Dave's work is kind of disingenuous as well. So
0: It's interesting because like when you when you did it, it was the kind of thing where you could go to a local gym and be like, hey, you know, give us five of your best athletes and we'll we'll go get together and do a throwdown. Yeah. And it was something that you could consider accessible to the layman. Right. Like if you were a weekend warrior, you like to train hard, you know, you're really into this stuff. You can go and you can compete at the CrossFit Games and do this competition. Now it's gotten to the point where it is almost entirely inaccessible to the layman. Well, it's they're professional athletes. Yeah, I mean, like, listen, if you're, I'd say if you're over twenty five years old and you don't have it, I would say you're just going to hurt yourself trying. Just, just enjoy your fitness. Don't worry about the competition side of things. But at the same time, that competition really helped expose crossfit to so many people so it's kind of this double-edged sword yeah. it's like the competition side is really forcing a lot of people out feel like they can't play but it's also bringing a lot of people in who are intrigued by the idea of being a strong formidable man or woman um and and having this pursuit of becoming the fittest
1: Well, there was just this kind of weird belief. And when I did the CrossFit Games, and I saw this for a couple of years after when we started CrossFit football and we traveled and taught, you know, you guys were teaching level ones. I was teaching our CrossFit football stuff. Uh, There was this like prevailing belief that that somebody could be training alone in a garage, like unbeknownst to anybody, and then show up on the world stage and win the CrossFit Games. And like maybe there was like a week there where that might have been true. But then all of a sudden, like, the athletes and the workouts and like just the volume and the intensity. I mean, these, you know, these kids basically became professional athletes. And if you look at who's really, you know, I mean, uh, I know your wife won the CrossFit Games a few times.
0: Yeah. So she went for 10 years and she was always kind of in that top five, 10 mix. She won in 2014.
1: Yeah. So, so, but she got to the point where like all of a sudden like 18 year old girls are smashing this thing. And all of a sudden you just kind of age out. It's like pro football. Where, you know, all of a sudden, hey, I could still play at 30, 32, 33, but then all of a sudden these like 23-year-old kids come in and it's just, you kind of just age out. It's not like your skills go away. You just not, it it just, it just kind of is one of those things.
0: Yeah, I think there's like a number of factors. So the first one that you're saying is like younger athletes coming into the sport or starting the sport younger. I think when you, when you get into CrossFit. I think you got a good solid five years before you're going to tap out your ability to progress, regardless of what age you are, right? If you start, if you're 20 or 40, you got five years where you should see a lot of good progression, but it's obviously more advantageous to start younger, right? Because you you have the, the advantage of youth and the ability to recover. Um, and then you also had like a lot more talented athletes coming in there. So, you know, when you competed at the CrossFit Games, John, you were probably... One of the only professional athletes or people who had exposure to athletics at a really high level. Yeah. The rest of them were probably, you know, high school, community college. You know, like they they never didn't really have that kind of elite athlete in the mix. And now I think that's commonplace to see a lot of high level athletes transitioning to CrossFit after their their college sports or their professional careers, and then just the knowledge of training. You know, like what it actually takes, the knowledge of nutrition. And probably pharmaceutical, too, has all influenced how that, uh, you know, at that top tier athlete is able to perform like, you know, when I was doing it and, and when you were doing it, there would be events where some people literally couldn't even do one rep. They'd be like, oh, I, know, I can't do a muscle up. Dude. You can still do pretty well, but you could have massive yeah. you know, gaps in your fitness and still be competitive. Now everyone's good at everything.
1: We were supposed to uh, remember the deadlift burpee workout. It was supposed to be 315. And they changed it to 275 because there were dudes there that couldn't deadlift 315. It was yeah. like it was like over double body weight. I was like two and a half times body weight for Spieler. And he yeah. was it was he was like 135, 140 pounds. And they yeah. were like, ah, fuck, we can't like double body weight most. So they moved it down to two seventy-five. And uh yeah, like I'm like looking over Spielers in my heat, and we're like having to do chest to bar pull-ups. And I'm like <laughs> like watching this dude do pull-ups, and I'm like, you know, I'm like uh what, like a week out of training camp. So I'm like 308, 310 pounds. So I was yep. over like double body weight for him. And, uh, fuck, it sucked. It was, um, you know, I, I don't know, man, like ego hubris, whatever. Uh, but I, I thought it was fun. And, uh, I tried like, you know, there were a lot of people that CrossFit had reached out like, Hey, come do this. And people weren't willing to do it. And, um, for me, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm down. I mean, I'll go train out in the field and see what I got. And, uh, I think out of the 200 some people I might've finished in the
0: seventies. So, but yeah, I, I don't know if and I made any illusions too, about because, winning. like the idea is to crown the fittest athlete on earth, but I will say that a lot of the test for that is very CrossFit specific, right? I mean, well, it's the fittest person CrossFit on
1: pre- earth. Pre- it, it was the fittest person on earth. That day in Aromas with Dave Castro programming. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. Um, but like, you know, just that test in general, it's like when you look at it, um, there is the element of fitness and then there's the element of just being good at CrossFit as a as a methodology. And I think to to do well, you really have to have both. But there always is that question because I'm like, I look at like Olympic athletes. I'm like, man, if you even taught these guys how to do these movements a little bit. Some of them would just smoke the top-level CrossFitters. You know, it's Just you, gotta, you just got to, um, you know, have that, that natural God-given ability. And there's also that idea of, like, uh, versatility, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, someone like you be so amazing at, at, at weightlifting and moving load, and you can, you know, probably move a tremendous amount of weight. But then there's, on the flip side of that, the ability to just move your body through space and run and have endurance. It's like a compromise in there. That um, selects for the CrossFitter.
1: Yeah, well, um, there's been some high level other professionals that have come to CrossFit after the fact, um, but I, you know, um, there was always, you know, and I, dude, I got this question almost every seminar. I'm sure you guys did. People be like, "What does the ideal CrossFitter look like?" And uh, somebody that could swim, probably run the 800 meters, you know, it was proficient Olympic weightlifting, and then at the end of the day, just went and did nothing but learned the CrossFit movements. Um, you know, it's kind of like in MMA, you you look in the UFC, uh, you know, the majority of guys that are dominating the UFC right now have a wrestling background. So they're wrestlers and then they get in, they learn some submission through jits and a little bit of striking, but like that wrestling background, if you take a look at like that, um, you know, with the CrossFit thing, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it doesn't really uh like there's not like one kind of like maturation process where like hey this guy was a high level gymnast and he became an 800 meter runner i mean all the girls that are very successful are all ex gymnasts just because yeah i mean uh,
0: including yeah. including my wife i mean cammy she had a background in gymnastics and olympic lifting and all we had to do was teach her how to develop a little more top end strength and how to do endurance training But still, whenever she would get that workout that was like the odd object kind of workout, like just do the work, just pull the sled or flip the tire, that really was the equalizer for her because there was no real specific skill required for those things. It's just like flat-out capacity, you know, like can you move from A to B? Um, So, yeah, I think think it's a blend of all that stuff.
1: So, once you got into that, and uh, I always remember, I think I went to dinner with Dave, and it might have been Matt Chan. Uh, they were joking and they called um, what, what did they call it? They called it the Dave Lipson effect where they would like, <laughs> like they, they they were like, there's always one workout, you know, they, they, they're kind of like figuring out who's going to make the cross of the so It'd always be some workout that Lipson would show up and absolutely just fucking smash everybody and ruin everybody else's chances.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I was kind of, that. I could get away with that for a while where when we would compete at, like, let's say the regional, like I could come in last at a bunch of events. Like if it was like, <laughs> a 10 K run or muscle ups and handstand ups. I'm like, I, I would literally almost like not even try in those events just to like save my energy. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I know I'm going to come in last year. I was just kind of a big guy and wasn't particularly good at those things, but I did love the strength component. Right. So like that was something that I could always excel at. So anything that was more of a strength based test, I knew I could win just like flat out and just like, you know, rip through these, we would do, we would do workouts at like double the prescribed weight, you know? And, and, uh, and, and I think having my background in strength training was such a huge advantage that I could compensate for those deficiencies or weaknesses or things I wasn't as talented in until everyone got really good at those things too. (laughs) And then everyone got really strong. Everyone got pretty strong. Yeah. I mean, like now it's like because Because I I think when you look back at the 2008 or or 2008, 2009, 2010, probably all the way up to probably like 2012, the CrossFitters were not strong. They just weren't. I mean, like any – there would be a guy on every single collegiate athletic team, football, baseball uh, hockey that could probably outlift the strongest crossfitter. When you know that, and like a a 500 pound back squat in, in D1 sports is like, oh yeah, like you're a, you're a regular strength linebacker, you know, like, uh, but it's not any kind of level of exceptional strength or anything like that. And I think, um, at having that, like, you know, having that foundation really made it easy for me in some regards to compete at that high level. Um, but then eventually you just couldn't get away with it anymore. You know, it just, the, the athletes got a little too good. And I, I felt like I had had my opportunity to have a pro sports career that I didn't want to become a full-time yeah. CrossFit athlete. I just, I just liked, I just like feeling strong and, you know, training intensely. I think that, that level of intensity to me, even to this day, that's why I, I love training is being able to, um, express aggression in a healthy way, not just, physically, emotionally, it helps me so much. And, and I think that's what good training is, is like being able to flip that switch and do something with just flat out malicious intent to keep your sharpness. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, that, that kind of got to the point where I could no longer really do that with CrossFit cause I was just wrecking myself. So I had to change things up a little bit.
1: Dude, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, like I was perpetually tired with CrossFit. So uh, when I, you know, obviously that last like couple weeks before the CrossFit Games, I changed my training to do more CrossFit stuff to kind of learn the skills for the games. Then we get done, and I go to training camp, and uh, I was so tired, like just like neurologically, physically, just so beat down. I'd never shown up to training camp, uh, you know, everything just always felt sharp and a hundred miles an hour, and I just remember like getting in my stance. And, like, just like getting off and being like, I'm so tired. Like, what have I done to myself? This was a terrible fucking idea. And what you saw with the evolution across a football was me trying to right my own wrong, where I didn't want athletes to come to this thing and have the same mistakes. So, you know, shorter, you know, anywhere from seven to 10 minute conditioning workouts, a little bit more bodybuilding, lifting weights, periodized strength templates, you know, sprinting and running. Um, You know, so it was just like, I saw the problems that I was encountering. You know, I remember one day it was like, what, like we had to do like 100 burpees for time at a workout. I was, I still to this day hated doing 100 burpees, you know, because for me, up downs were punishment. And now all of a sudden they're voluntarily in the coach. Is like, uh, the workout today is a hundred up to or burpees. And I'm like, this is terrible programming. And every time we would travel and go, you know, to different gyms, it just looked like the most God awful beat downs. And I, tr- I kept trying to tell people, I'm like, there's no way to build your city tall if you burn your city to the ground every single day and trying to like talk to people about this. And they just had this kind of like scorched earth motherfucker mentality. Every time we walked into a gym, it was like, burn it to the ground. And I'm like, God damn it. How are we going to build athletes? And so something that I tried to do was uh, hopefully offer people a little bit better a solution where like you don't have to absolutely decimate yourself. If like every day you, you walk in, like somebody just shot you out of a cannon uh, that's not a good feeling. So, um, then how did like the, uh, you know, obviously you, you're finished up with CrossFit. It felt like, uh, as your wife was kind of, you know, ascending into, you know, the top levels, you kind of became like a little bit more support staff where it's like, I'm going to, you know, support her and work with her and kind of help her get in that. But what was the avenue to get you into bodybuilding?
0: Oh man. So like, I, I want to go back to what you said, because I think, um, to me, there's no such thing as bad training. There's only context. Like everything has value. And you said it yourself, like when I look back at CrossFit and you think about like, well, what are the good, valuable things about CrossFit? It's systemically changed the entire fitness industry. You go into any 24-hour fitness now, you're going to see an Olympic lifting platform and a pull-up bar and some kettlebells and maybe some gymnastic rings. And I think what it did was it, it started to introduce these high value functional movements that have a lot of utility and context in and out of the gym. So I think anyone's going to argue like the efficacy of these functional movements compared to leg extensions, machines and hamstring curls. Like obviously this stuff is effective and just getting the movements in people's hands has a tremendous effect is what i call the honeymoon period like you know you get somebody who's never done an air squat before and all of a sudden they start air squatting and they're looking better and they're feeling better and they're more functional and this is like everything's going good but then what i saw was that it gets to a point sometimes it's two three four years in when the athlete has some capacity now So, they've learned the movements, they've mastered the positions, they can, you know, they have a decent fran time and they can clean and jerks a decent amount of weight. Where all of a sudden, you kind of start to plateau where there's no longer progress. And even more frequently, I started to see like breakdown, like, oh, I got this shoulder thing, I got this back thing, I got this knee thing. And that's where I felt like the gap in the programming needed to be more intelligent, more intelligent, you know, to specifically. Help the people continue to progress because that idea of constantly vary just like intensities the cure all if your back's hurt more intensity right <laughs> like that's yep. not really what it needs to be you, you're you're actually a much more riskier athlete when you have capacity versus when you don't have capacity like you're not gonna hurt your back doing an empty barbell deadlift, even if you have poor positions. But once you can pull a little bit of weight, and you're going as fast as you can, or not modulating your recovery, that's when you're going to start to break down. And um, what you're describing, John, like you went to camp and you felt so tired. That's another thing I see is like this, this systemic hormonal suppression Mm -hmm. from too much intensity and not enough recovery. Um, Because you can't, red line every single day as hard as you can in just a random fashion and expect that there are not going to be some detrimental side effects to your health and performance um so yeah I mean after coaching cam uh and and you know she did what she needed to do in CrossFit uh we had both messed ourselves up pretty badly like I had a, a major back injury. Like my the discs in my back were just torn to smithereens. Like I had all these annular tears. I'm I'm not laughing at you.
1: I'm I'm not laughing at you, but I think it's hilarious that like you know, hey, like uh, you know, uh, like you played pro baseball, you grew up, you know, all this, and all of a sudden you get into CrossFit, and it's like the fucking wheels come off from just like the volume, intensity, and this like fucking constant search to just like uh, the joke I give is like it's like you're setting your body on a funeral pyre and like burning it every single day.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like legitimately for the first three years, I was thinking, man, I wish I had this when I was playing baseball because like, I couldn't get into an overhead squat. The first time I did it, I had never really done a lot of these things. And I saw the translation to athleticism immediately just by practicing the movements. But when I started doing it, like every single day, as hard as I could, and then I started breaking down, that was the point where I'm like, Oh, this is, this is hurting me way more than pro sports ever hurt me before. Um, you know, I had I had developed so many tears in my discs in my lower back that um, all the nerves coming out of the foramen canals were supposed to look like spaghetti. looked like fettuccine. They were all compressed, and I was losing feeling down my legs. I was like, "Oh man!" Like after I don't know if there's any kind of rehab or injection therapy that's going to be able to fix this. So I actually had a, su- a major surgery, and they had to drill a bunch of holes in my spine just to make more room for those nerves so I could preserve the function of my legs. Um, and, uh, and also with Cam, like she had just completely torn her shoulder to smithereens. She had like everything she could tear was torn. Um, and it was from all the, you know, the volume of overhead and gymnastics and as hard as you can and that nature of competition. In addition to the fact that she actually started to experience cognitive impairment, meaning she was, she was getting like, Early onset Alzheimer's. She was having a hard time having her brain function because she was just training as hard as she possibly could every day for years and years, and all of her hormones were suppressed. Like not any one singular hormone, but everything. Wait,
1: hold on, hold on. So she was actually having like a like a cognitive effect from too much. Was it like a cortisol thing? I mean, just too much intensity and just ab.
0: I don't know how to describe it other than like you push your body and your body pushes back. And when you do it that long for that many years, and she is such a determined and stubborn athlete that the idea of like tired doesn't matter to her, you know, like she'll, she'll do it anyways. If it's written down, she does it. And she like that level of determination is her strength, but it also can hurt you. Right. Um, So we went, I think this was around 2018. Uh, she went and did a bunch of medical tests and they, she did, they did her blood work and they sent the blood work back and they said, I think you, this is the wrong blood work. And she's like, what do you mean? He goes, well, this, this blood work you sent us is from a postmenopausal woman. Oh wow! And he goes, well, that's how suppressed all of her hormones work. They thought she was an elderly woman based on her blood markers. Um, oh, fuck. And so she thought, okay, you know what, I would like to have kids, maybe it's time for me to step away from this. At the same time, I had had my back surgery. And I just remember being on the couch, looking up at the ceiling for like two weeks thinking, you know, you love to train so much. It's such an important part of your life. You found so much joy in it. Now that you've been given this new lease, like this this new additional time to continue to train, how are you going to honor that? And I knew the answer wasn't going back and doing more CrossFit or continuing to make the mistakes I had already made, but I need to find a way to evolve. And so I was thinking about like, oh, maybe I'll try some powerlifting or strength sport or maybe I'll uh, do this or that. And I kind of landed on bodybuilding because I realized that it's really that concept of the the adaptation process of like wearing your work on your body that really got me excited. And I had never really pursued that at a serious level before. You know, everyone says they've done bodybuilding, but you're not doing it until you do it. You know, it's like someone saying, I did a thruster and a burpee and I'm doing CrossFit. That's not really doing CrossFit. You're not doing it until you're doing the whole thing. So I started to Uncover the layers of, of of bodybuilding, and I was lucky. I, I lived in proximity to the seven-time Mister Olympia, Phil Heath, and was able to train with him and at his gym and learn a lot of stuff from some amazing coaches at Armrest Pro Gym in Denver. Especially from my coach, Alan Waddy Watkins. The guy's got like sixty-five IFBB pros, and I was able to link up with some really brilliant guys in that realm of muscle hypertrophy. One in particular, Doctor Brad Schoenfeld. Mm-hmm. I remember having a call with him after my surgery saying like, hey, here's the deal. I had this back surgery. The doctors say I can't lift heavy. Is there any way for me to pack on size and strength? You're the hypertrophy expert. And his take on this stuff was so simple and brilliant. You know, he's kind of the person who scrutinizes all the hypertrophy studies. And the one common theme, the one thing he was kind of trying to impart to me is that like your body's this really sophisticated machine that's designed to do one thing. It's just designed to survive. So the stress, the stress you put on it is going to directly correlate with the adaptations you get. It's the it's the um, set general principle. Syndrome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Set it's principle. Like guy- specific
1: adaptation to post demands.
0: Exactly. The Han Seal said this in 1909, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, an organism tends to adapt to the stress you place on it. So he's like, as long as you're taking your muscles to failure, whether that be with lightweight or heavyweight or low reps or high reps, it doesn't matter. Failure is that you have to exhaust your muscles in some way. So we came up with a basic system that was actually inspired by this guy, Vince Gironda. And Vince Gironde is like an OG bodybuilding legend. Not enough people know about him, but he was like the first proponent of the steak and eggs diet. Yep. And he was known as the uh, the bodybuilder in the golden era who was able to get to such a crazy level of conditioning yep. that the judges didn't even know how to grade him because they'd never seen somebody that lean. But he had this system, it was called eight by eight. You do eight sets of eight reps with three second negatives and just 30 seconds rest. And it's a way to take a light load, like even 40, 60%, of your one rep max and exhaust your muscle to failure with a light weight and get a pretty substantial hypertrophic effect. So I did it myself. I was shocked. I was like, holy crap. I didn't lift a heavy weight and I just put on 25 pounds of muscle inside of a year. Like Damn. that was outstanding. Right. And, uh, and granted, like I lost a lot after the surgery, I dropped about 20 pounds after the surgery, but I would never been that big and muscular and full before, And um, and I thought, man, there's something to this. And that kind of inspired me to start Thunderbro and figure out, you know, if I'm not just trying to be a display model only, but I like the idea of being able to use my fitness and I love the functional movements and the CrossFit environment, the community. It's so fun. Like, I don't want to leave that. But is there a way for me to take these hypertrophy principles and overlap them on top of barbells and dumbbells with functional movement so we can still practice these really fun athletic things but the way we're doing it is different it's a lot more calculated and thought out and a lot more geared towards muscle hypertrophy or just increasing the cross-sectional size and strength of muscle which for me coming off of back surgery was very therapeutic because, you know, rehab is about building yourself back up. And a lot of what they do in rehab is just an expression of hypertrophy. You know, like you have a shoulder surgery sure. and you're moving a, a light band for high reps and just trying to find ways, not necessarily to make heavy weights feel easy, but trying to find ways to make light weights feel hard because that's really where the sweet spot is. And, and I also realized a lot of the skills I learned in CrossFit, like how to be efficient, whether you're doing a kipping pull-up or creating momentum on barbells or just trying to move weight really fast is actually not great for hypertrophy. So those elements of speed and load that I was so adamant at chasing because I wanted my name you know, at the top of the whiteboard to have the fastest score, the heaviest weight, that really wasn't the best thing to help my muscles grow. What was a lot more helpful was Doing things under really good strict control and just focusing on the adaptation, not the number. And that's what's nice about like stepping into hypertrophy is like your score doesn't matter. What matters is that you're consistently taking your muscles to failure in a lot of different ways, progressively, consistently over long periods of time without fucking yourself up. Like that was to me is like I can still flip that switch and have that malicious intent in every top set of training. But the way that I'm doing that top set's different. It's not just moving it for the sake of moving it. It's moving it with purpose.
1: Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, um, I first heard of Vince Garanda when I was in high school, uh, the old powerlifter that trained me. He talked about the Vince Garanda's diet. It was basically a paleo diet with like raw milk and uh, copious amounts of yep. dianabol. was what uh, old man Zang has told me. <laughs> and uh, he he had Vince's gym in Venice, and I think Arnold and those guys first trained there. And uh, the pictures of Vince Garanda are fucking – dude looks incredible. you know. But he was also – what was his um, – he was real like anti-squat. He thought it made like the trunk real big. And so yeah, I dug into his stuff. But uh what a what a dude that was so far ahead of his time in terms of diet and training. And it's hilarious. And I dude, I'm I'm a fan of Brad's and uh it seems like all of the things that we thought about hypertrophy from you know uh metabolites and this really come down to this idea of working into some form of mechanical failure and then yeah. even pushing on. I mean, which is you know, like Dorian Yates and Mike Metzner and, you know, one set to failure and realizing that, you know, recovery is a key. And, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's a style of training I've always subscribed to, but then there's, you know, like we had Jay Cutler on the podcast and he only did four sets of 12 of every yep. movement. That was it. And it was never like a maximal load. It was never, you know, I asked him, I'm like, well, like, could you have got 13 reps? He's like, I don't know, I just did 12. And I was like, well, yep. how did you pick the weight? And he's like, well, it was heavy. And I was like, it just... <sighs> Like you know, it, it was it,
0: it's so funny to yeah. me and, and there's some guys that you know, like in CrossFit, for instance, in CrossFit, the way the methodology is explained is with a black box. You remember you remember that? Like Coach Glassman uh, was up on the board saying, well, like we so, give you this training. And then this is the input that goes into the black box. And like, we don't really know what's happening. But as a result, you get faster and Uh, you're
1: more fit. Uh, When I sat through Glassman's deal, so I went to the, uh, I think it was the last seminar, or maybe it was the first seminar that Glassman didn't present at. uh, But it was like the first one that Dave had kind of taken. So I, I was in this weird transition. But as I sat and listened to the information, um, you know, you had to teach the information, uh, you know, and I, and I know they just kind of almost program you to like verbatim dump this stuff. But as I sat there and I listened to the black box and all of their methodology, um, I was like, this is, uh, like, I just didn't buy it. Like I was like, okay, so first of all, you don't know what the effect is. And you kept talking about this potent neuroendocrine response, associated with exercise, but yet like they didn't have the physiology. It, it was really, um, it felt like a lot of grasp and the problem is, and, and they, they asked me about it and I was like, until you guys develop a world-class athlete that, uh, you know, and I think the, the whole push for Dave and CrossFit was like, you know, we're the fittest on the planet. And I was like, you know, my comment was like, I always thought we knew what the fittest on the planet was. That's why we have the Olympics and the decathlon or the yeah. decathletes, um, I don't know, man. It's uh, but yeah, I'm I'm with you on this like black box theory where like, hey, we're gonna put in all these inputs, but we don't know that doing these singles, doubles, and triplets to max intensity, and they also under uh, understood intensity different than I did, and like you did. When I hear the word intensity, I think a percentage of one RM. Like to me, um, like effort is never quantified. Like I was like, well, wait a minute, like you mean you don't go in and train as hard as you can. Like it was, it was just a lot of things coming from where I had as an NFL player, like listening to this information. It was, um, I was confused like you with the black box.
0: Yeah. And I'll tell you what, like a lot of the material is kind of ripped out of the Cliff Notes version of an exercise in physiology 101 book, including the depiction of the energy systems and what you're talking about, like the neuroendocrine response. That's something that he got from Dr. Kramer at UConn, who wrote the most visible paper on the neuroendocrine response from strength training. That's saying like, hey, when you lift really heavy weight, you have these very sophisticated organelles in your muscles that communicate with your brain to indicate like, hey, this is a load that we're not used to. And so your brain responds by making your body stronger and thicker and more formidable, right? Yep. That's the neuroendocrine response. Well, but it it, it, it actually
1: shows different orders in the brain. They, they put a cap on the brain and then they were able to figure out which part of the brain is activated based on one RM. Obviously, if you're over 90%, it's a top order. And then it's like 75 to 85 is here. And then anything below, you know, or sorry, it was like 70 to 85. And then anything below 70 is like lower order. So they talked about activating the highest, you know, Being able to work through the different parts of the brain i think is what. yeah
0: uh, this is something that like dr brad schoenfeld went into this goes into this in depth and he's like you know you've got these um uh i guess you could call them mechanosensors in your muscles and they're going to tell you how much tension is required for you to actually shorten the fibers to be able to move the weight or the range of motion it's like just kind of all communicating with your brain in a very fast and sophisticated way and when you challenge those mechanosensors in a way that they're unaccustomed to, like they've never felt that weight before. They've never felt that duration of loading. They never felt that range of motion. That is the catalyst for, for these hormones. But going back to the black box, if you don't understand what's going on physiologically, it's very hard to recreate it with your training, yeah. you know, you need to know what's going on on a cellular level to be able to effectively target it. And there's a guy named uh, Christian yeah. Uh You've probably heard of him. Oh, yeah. Really great dude. Good yeah. buddy from up in Canada. I originally knew Christian from T Nation, yeah. uh, which was an awesome blog about like bodybuilding, powerlifting, strength sport, you know, hormone stuff, all kinds of cool yeah. things there. Uh, and, I don't
1: think that there's anybody who doesn't. I mean, uh, dude, I used to call it T-Bag Nation because, yeah, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, it was so bro. It was just like I would say that that's bro like science.
0: very strongly influential to how I created Thunderbro. I wanted Thunderbro to be the T-Nation of CrossFit, okay? I thought um,
1: Th- Thunder Bro was more like T-Nation had a baby with the WWE. I
0: exactly. <laughs> something like that. But, you know, Christian does some interesting stuff because you're talking about Jake Cutler, Dorian Yates, or, or Vince Gironda, and how they all had different training styles. Like uh, Christian does something different where he actually gets into neurotyping. So he's like, okay, genetically, what type of training are you going to best respond to best on your muscle fiber type, right? So if like, if you have more fast twitch fibers, it's likely you wouldn't respond as well to long endurance, ultra high rep, but maybe you're, maybe more of that short, uh, you know, three, four, five, six rep type of athlete that will hypertrophy more based on that kind of training um, and vice versa, right? Uh, and the one thing he kind of keeps talking about is training with close proximity to failure. So all these guys yeah. are are saying the same thing. They're right. all saying, oh, you know, train as heavy as you can, train to mechanical failure, tra- train with close proximity to failure, train and then get three forced reps, like whatever it is. That's the common thing is like you have to ask your body to do something it doesn't want to do in a calculated and systemic and progressive way. And that's where you see the most progress. So like, you know, Jay, he's going to do 12 reps and he'll do 12 reps as heavy as he can in each movement. And that's his he's holding that variable still because he knows that's where he responds best to. And And then he just increases the load.
1: Well, and he also, um, he thought that the stim, that the, the training was not the stimulus that allowed him to grow. His whole deal was, uh, the training allowed him to eat more food was like his whole deal. He's like, he's like, yeah. Um, the difference in physiques comes down to the food, like the person that can eat the most, uh, like, you know, I, I, uh, I understand that because, you know, like the, the biggest and the leanest I ever was, was uh, eating the most calories. So I think when I was, um, what, 306 at like uh, 282 pounds of lean muscle. And when I was just over like seven, 8% in the bod pod, um, I was eating like 65 to 7,000 calories a day. It was like four to five, 1500 calorie meals to the point where like, I was dreading having to eat this food. And it was, uh, it was ground beef rice with like, uh, I forgot something else in there. It was Maybe like some olive oil or whatever it was for, but. Um, it sucked and I just tell people I'm like and then when I stopped eating that much uh, I end up losing muscle and gaining body fat and they were like so wait a minute the more you ate I'm like I know it's a crazy deal but if you look and uh, Jay was great in that he's like you know the food is really the driver for this thing and I think I love I
0: love that approach
1: yeah I mean people get so wrapped around the axle um I made this this comment years ago and I don't think it was on a podcast it might have been in a blog. But uh, I could, you know, from being in training in NFL weight rooms and seeing guys, I could tell you within an inch of your life, the guys that trained over 85% and those guys uh, that didn't. And the reason being, as I watched dudes go in and they never put more than 315 on a squat and they would do it for, you know, four or five, six reps and it looked the same. And when somebody asked me that, they were like, you know, what do you mean about that? Um, And the thing was, is that very few people did high reps. They just did whatever the reps were prescribed at a weight at which they felt comfortable with. You know, so if it called for like six to eight reps on the squat, I'll put three fifteen on, not realizing that like you could probably squat that for thirty, yeah. but not realizing that the intensity has to match a number that if I'm gonna do five reps, it's gotta be at 85%. If I'm gonna do, you know, three reps, it's gotta be at ninety. So I mean the percentage and it really comes down to like if I can hit, you know, if I got ninety percent on, I can hit it for three and I can hit it for four and I can hit it for five. If I stop at three, then I'm losing the adaptation to four and five
0: yeah i think that's what's funny is that's how most people train like you go into i mean not, not even just in the regular globo gym where nobody's really you know they're they're afraid to push because they don't want to look silly i think yeah. people people get very um self-conscious they don't want to look you know i'm the opposite i'm the guy who's like screaming in the corner and like delirious and stuff <laughs> but uh um, but even in crossfit gyms like you look at something like you could totally you could do more but i think you know, that's fine for maintaining strength or maintaining where you're at, but it's not going to allow you to evolve. It's not going to force any adaptation. You you, you just, you have to get, you have to get uncomfortable to, to force the adaptation. Your body wants to be comfortable. And so if it's easy, that means you got it. But you, until you create that alarm where it pushes back and says, oh, fuck, I don't like this. Part of that alarm is adapting, you know, cross-sectional size and strength. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because like... Hearing what you're saying about Jay, I 100% agree on that. And that's something that I never really considered until I got into bodybuilding. Just understanding that adaptation process is it's not in the training that you grow. You don't grow in the training. You, if anything, you're getting smaller. You're getting weaker in the training. You're depleting glycogen. It's what you're doing the other 23 hours of the day that are going to have the greatest impact as to which direction your body's moving. So the training can act as the catalyst if you're doing the other things properly. And what the other things are is like rest, recovery, nutrition. And also, you know, I didn't really discover this until I got into bodybuilding is like mastering your internal chemistry and understanding anabolism and catabolism and how to optimize your hormones. Or like, what is the environment in your body to allow for muscle growth and health and and to to strive? That's something I think like a lot of people in CrossFit don't really look at Yeah, they're You know, they, they just, they just assume black box, right? If I do more thrusters and eat paleo, it should work. And, um, and that's not how it goes.
1: I used to look, I, um, I've, you know, we'll do consults for people and I've done it for years where, um, you know, Hey, I'm going through all these problems. I always recommend go get your blood work. And, you know, I know Stan and, and I'm sure you do it too. And dude, with the CrossFit stuff, uh, I would look at their blood work and when, and then, you know, we get on a consult and I'm like, you're effectively making yourself a eunuch. Uh, I have never in my life seen people with like this bad of like hormonal scores. And, uh, you know, and then I talked to him like, tell me what you're doing. It was like a low carb, uh, fasted paleo uh, training multiple times fasted in this. And I'm like, I, like, I don't know what you think you're doing, but like, you have to put calories around your training, either before or after. Like this idea of I'm going to fast for 20 hours a day and train three times and then eat one singular meal. That's this and this. I'm just like, dude, you you guys are fucking killing yourselves. Like I like I couldn't. Uh, I mean, cortisol was a mess. I mean, everything. And I'm like, dude, like, how are you going to effectively reach your goal? And even if it's body composition or just being able to get a heart on, like this is not allowing it to happen. And I'm like, that should be a good indicator. I remember this one guy's like, yeah, I probably haven't like had a, had like a, an erection that I didn't have to like work up in so long. And I was like, oh my God, that's a real problem. He's like, oh, I just figured that that was happening the age. I'm like, dude, you made yourself a eunuch. You're fasting 20 hours a day. You're eating a low carb diet. You're training multiple times a day in this high intensity environment. I'm like, there's nothing about this. This is a good idea. I'm like, eat some food, eat some protein, eat some carbs, bank some weights, go for a walk, get sleep i mean these are the the secrets i mean you know i've never
0: met a pro bodybuilder that fasted i think a lot of people get like almost maybe addicted to the intensity or they fall into this um mentality of of more is better you know and and in a lot of cases for folks less is more in fact for the first you know for people who come into our stuff we do things so much different than in crossfit like we we train body parts once a week right so we do like legs chest back shoulders and arms And they're used to doing legs and then legs and then legs. And like, there's so much repetition and it's, it's the time in between where you allow the tissue to heal and remodel and grow thicker, but also having that recovery between your body parts to allow for that, that healing lets you train hard and really demolish them and then get, allow for that healing to take place. If you don't give yourself that time, then you're not only getting diminishing returns, but you're probably moving in the opposite direction and, and you know, you were talking about like the food, like, you, you know, how many calories you were eating when you were, you felt like you were at your best. I, I think that that's really something to be said about that is like, people don't understand that that process of growing muscle is about taking matter and turning it into muscle mass. And so you need to be training your gut and training your digestion the same way you train the weights where like, you know, to get a bigger back squat, you got to put more weight on the bar Well, if you wanna put on more muscle, you gotta train yourself to eat more and more food and be able to process it well. And and this is where you need to be calculated and, and you're revving up, you're building a faster metabolism because your body has to process more. But a lot of people are just undercarbed, undercaloried, overstressed. So when you're looking at their blood work, you're going to see the same stuff where the, the thyroid is going to be really slow and sluggish. The cortisol is going to be through the roof. The testosterone total and free is going to be super duper low. Um, you know, you're going to see a lot of these hormone markers looking like like an elderly person because it's just constant stress without enough recovery. And the recovery is not just like resting and relaxing. It's the food. The food is the recovery. The food is what helps you heal, which allows your body's processes to work. But I think that's not the focal point for a lot of folks. And they go back to that adage we talked about, like intensity is the cure-all. So if I want to be better, I need to go harder.
1: Well, there is, um, this fasting thing too uh, is pretty interesting. And like everywhere we go, I run into this fasting deal and I'm like, you know, uh, um, you know, always the big kick is autophagy right. Oh, we got to clear metabolic garbage. If you go look at any of the research and Brad's got some good stuff on this as well, the greatest form of autophagy comes from exercise. Uh, you know, and I know you guys worked with, uh, with Tom Inkladon at Cosenta, um, you know, when I know you guys were doing all your blood work. Yep. Um, you know, I remember Tom being like, you know, the greatest, cause there, there was always this deal like, you know, like what if the diet wasn't perfect, the exercise and this and sleep, I mean, this kind of trifecta, it's almost a Venn diagram that you're trying to balance. And I remember coming on and Tom being like, you know, like the sleep is important. The food's important. And Now it's come down to like if the exercise and you train, you know, there's a, um, you know, a ton of like hormonal response in terms of like, you know, autophagy, especially clearing metabolic garbage, avoiding cancer. I mean, his, his deal is like, if you can continue to train your ability to be able to fight off illness and the things that'll kill us down the road uh, exponentially increases. You know, and the fact that you have people that are like, oh, I'm going to do a 60 hour fast to clear autophagy. I'm like, I'd just rather go lift weights and do some conditioning. And uh, to me, that's a much better way at it.
0: It's the same thing with training where it's like all these nutritional protocols, they do have context and value, but you got to be more specific with what you're talking about. Like if you're talking about somebody who doesn't really train, maybe they're in trouble, maybe they have poor insulin sensitivity and they're not very active and we say, hey, bro we're going to put you on a 16 and 8 fast. Well yes, you're going to see improvement. Like obviously you're going to see improvement. You're creating environmental stress in your body by being in a, you know in a fasted state, you're going to you're going to start to build better insulin sensitivity. But if you have somebody who's already doing those things right, they're already they're not over-consuming, you know, high highly processed, sugar laden carbohydrates. They are active, you know, they're getting a good panel of micronutrients in their diet. If you start putting additional stress on top of the stress they're already um, they're already putting on themselves, that can be just a slippery slope towards decline. Um, so I think that there's like you know the big the big sell with the the fasting is what you're talking about is like being able to. Get rid of the zombie cells in your body yeah. so the zombie cells are the ones that are technically dead but they're still in there and they can interfere with your process all these free radicals that kind of stuff and so doing a fast can help help you know get, get rid of those and i'm not saying that doing a fast every once in a while isn't a bad idea but i just had a question yesterday from somebody about that It's like what do you think about fasting and i'm thinking well it, it can be beneficial for your health but it's not going to help your performance yeah. and it's probably not something you want to do forever um, well, because there's got to be context in there right? when you, when
1: you my, were getting ready for your bodybuilding show, I mean, you were fasting, what, 23 hours a day.
0: Oh, fuck. No, no <laughs> way. <laughs> like, you know, what's, what's crazy about the process of show prep is you're eating, uh, at a, at a high frequency, right? So you're eating every three hours you're, you're feeding yourself. But the difference is where most people, when they eat, like you were describing, Right. They'll, they'll take their, their gas tank and they'll fill it up until it overflows, right? They'll be like, oh, I can't eat anymore. I'm, I'm totally full. I feel stuffed. I can't, you know, in some cases, they even have to force feed themselves to get the calories. But they're eating until they're completely satiated and they're probably overconsuming. They're in a caloric surplus. They're eating more than their body needs. When you are uh, cutting, you're not filling up that gas tank all the way, but you're filling up the gas tank enough to make it to the next gas station, right? So at two hours and 30 minutes, you know, there's a meal coming and you are ravenously hungry, right? And that appetite is, is, is enormous. Um, even though, even though you're eating more frequently, you're going to feel like you've never been so hungry. And the protein consumption is through the roof because you're trying to limit any of the the storage factors in your body. So you're really pushing fat and carbohydrates down quite a bit, and you're creating this positive nitrogen balance with like high high amounts of protein. So it, it's a trip, man. But and high protein, incredible. low fat,
1: right? Like a super high protein, low fat. So what's your yeah? So what's so your weapon of choice? About
0: at least 40% protein. Some people go up to five.
1: What uh what's your weapon what, of choice the, the on that? Uh, like? Yeah.
0: I mean, dude, it it just depends on how low the fat is. If I could I can be comfortable eating steak and eggs. And I'm just, I'm a happy camper. Like I feel totally happy, totally full when I have to go to leaner meats. That's when I feel like it gets really hard when you have, you know, when you have less than 50 grams of fat in a day, you got to eat 350 grams of protein. It's going to look like protein powder and tuna fish and lean ground Turkey. And, you know, like having some beef is like a huge treat. Right. Um, but you know that that's a progression too, right? To, sure. to get there, but it's incredible what that that kind of diet can do to a body in a in an eight to twelve week period. It's like just flipping those macronutrients and progressively pulling down, maybe introducing some cardio. It's like it flips the switch, and I don't think it's necessarily even a catabolic switch. I think there's a strong anabolic switch that gets flipped on by that ultra high positive nitrogen balance from the 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 um, the, the protein intake.
1: Yeah. No, I, uh, I'm, I'm with you. I despise chicken and Turkey and like, uh, egg whites. It's, uh, it gets hard. uh oh, dude, it, it just tastes terrible. Like, I um, know,
0: and, and uh, you know, for most people, you don't even need to go there until you're at already a very low body level of body fat. Like really? I think you can take, you can take most, most men, and be able to get them under 10% body fat and they can still eat a lot of good, you know, whole eggs, steak like that. They'll still, they'll still do well with that, but to get from like 7% to 5%, your body does not want to do that. And you really have to push it in an unnatural way to get there. That's why it's so hard. Nobody can like stay there. Like it's really impossible to stay even with anabolics. It's really hard to stay there because you need to be so depleted, to, to force that, uh you know, those fat cells to shrink down and to tap into that adipose tissue that it can be really, it's really not a fun place to live.
1: So what you're saying is that all of the Instagram people that are claiming to walk around at 5% body fat are, uh you know, I mean, and it's so funny because they're always like, oh, I, you know, I fast 20 hours and you hear all the shit and you're like, dude, first of all, you're full of shit. Uh, you know, like, you know, I mean, uh, there's obviously a fairly decent amount of anabolics that they're doing and they're also dieting specific for those pictures. I always wonder if like the majority of those people get in shape for like a few days and then do like 20 photo shoots and then use them for the rest of the year.
0: That's what I wish I did. You know, every time (laughs) I do, every time I do a show people will ask me like, what's your goal? Like, do you, are you trying to, are you trying to get your pro card? Do you want to place at this level at nationals? And I'm like, honestly, my only goal is to get as many photos and videos as I can. <laughs> because it is So hard to do this. And I am good. You have to suffer. You know, like I, I literally like there are nights where I, I'm in the fetal position crying because it just hurts so bad, but that's what it takes to force your body uh, to, to get down there. And that's my only concern is making sure that I chronicle it well. So that like, cause right now, like, you know, over years, what you have, you can do is you, you can raise your baseline. So the baseline sure. is like where you're comfortable living, right? So you're like, okay, uh, I'm 240 pounds I'm about 10% body fat. That's my baseline, you know, next, next year, maybe you can bump up to 245 and be at that same composition or maybe a little bit better, but you don't have to push yourself. You know, that's your body. Just like it holds on to these set points. Yeah. It's kind of you know improving that set point incrementally over years um you know for somebody who is 20% body fat getting down to 10% is not going to be a natural thing for them they really have to push to get there but your body adapts to this stuff over time it's not till you get to the ultra low end of of body fat that your body really is, is going to push back
1: yeah no that's uh that's an interesting piece i mean especially working with a lot of young athletes trying to explain to them on these body weight set points i know for me Um, I was like six foot a buck 65 when I started lifting weights and the amount of work that I had to do to get to 200 was like, like it was a a year later. I remember I grew like two inches and I got to 200 pounds. I put on like 35 pounds that first year and then trying to like, I remember 200 pounds was a huge marker. And then I remember like getting to like 230 was uh i like my mom uh had this thing that she called the pancake diet where every meal she would make me pancakes so it'd be finish like up oh, with pancakes. That oh yeah it, awesome. it was literally like yeah it's uh like i was probably eating like anywhere from like 14 to 16 pancakes a day it was like a four stack and she would do them and i put butter and i put maple syrup on there and like to get to 225 230 was like a big deal and then i remember 250 wasn't bad and i think i went to college and was like 250 but then like the jump to 275 it was like a bit of a fist fight, not as bad. But then I remember my brother's like, you know, you're going to have to weigh 300 pounds. And I was like, oh shit, like how the fuck are we going to get there? And I remember um, uh, like I was talking to, uh, I think I called Zangus. And I was like, okay, I'm like, I'm hovering at this like 268, 270. Like how do I get to 300? And he's like, uh, he gave me all these tips. I remember he's like, I want you to get a rice cooker. And I want you to have like a constant amount of white rice ready. And uh, like it was like uh, – we would get these little red potatoes and it was like olive oil and like this meat. And so I'd go, um, at the first day when we get our scholarship checks, I'd go to Costco and I'd buy something. It was like 70 eggs, all the ground beef I could. It was a sack of rice and like basically put this diet together. And, uh, I would eat anytime that I wasn't full, I would eat a meal. It was either white, uh, with white rice, uh, chicken, steak, egg, whatever. And I just got to the point where I just started cooking it and making it into like these, these Tupperware kind of containers that would have like rice, black beans, eggs, and some form of protein. And then I would like cut potatoes in it and I'd pour olive oil on it and like shake it up and eat these things. Yep. And, um, every time I'd be like, oh, I, I don't feel full. I would go eat one of these and, um, ended up making like up to like two ninety 300. And like, that was, uh, uh, that was like a heavyweight fist fight to get. I mean, thank God I grew like when I went to college at 18, I was 6'4". And when I went to get measured for the combine, I think I was like 6'5 and 3 quarters or 6'5". And just a hair under 6'6", which means I'm 6'6". So I grew two inches in college. Um, so, but That's I remember. Hot. yeah, which diet, was, I'm telling you. Oh, well, it was lucky that I, you know, when I went to college, I didn't own a razor. So, like, I remember I showed up and my roommate's like, you don't have a razor. I'm like, I've never shaved. So, I mean, I was lucky in that. I was a late bloomer. But I remember, like, lifting weights. And we didn't have anything else to do other than lift weights and eat um, and go to school. But, uh, man, I just remember like, and whenever people have asked me about like, Oh, like, you know, was it hard to put that weight on? And I was like, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was like fighting these set points and like your body would get stuck at these things and you had to go so far over the top to the point where I remember like waking up in the morning and weighing myself. And if the number, if my weight was down, like being depressed the whole day, And like not wanting to work out or do anything, just wanting to sleep and trying to recover. And if I got up and my weight was like up, I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to take on the world to the point where like, I just had such an unhealthy relationship with the scale and they used to weigh us. And then like motherfuckers, if we were underweight. and I mean, it was uh, like almost like an eating disorder in a lot of ways. Like, uh, You know, we were never bulimic. Obviously, you're anorexic, but like, I just reverse eating
0: disorder. It was crazy.
1: And then you just kind of have this kind of like weird, unhealthy relationship where like I enjoyed no food. And you just end up having this very transactional mentality of eating where like I'm looking at it and I'm like, like, okay, how much? Like, we go to this all you can eat sushi place. And our goal was to consume like 100 pieces of sushi. And like, just like, and then you're trying to calculate and you're like, okay, each one of these pieces of fish is like one ounce. And then in your mind, you're like, okay, if I eat 100 ounces of protein, obviously there's no fat. And, you know, like just doing these weird fucking equations in your head. Yep. And uh, it was just super unhealthy. But I don't know how else to like grow to like 300 pounds, which I don't think a lot of people should be 300 pounds, you know?
0: Well, I mean, that's pushing and it. was what's interesting is like, you know, when you look at that like that, you're eating pancakes and syrup and having all these calorically dense, fun foods, the concern is like, oh, is this gonna affect your insulin sensitivity? Are you gonna give yourself type two diabetes? And the fact is that as your muscle mass grows, so does your metabolism. And a lot of that insulin sensitivity is gonna come from the caloric balance. So if you have the muscle mass and you're using the fuel, like you're ripping through these carbs in training and in practice, and you're actually using them all, it doesn't have to have that. It's not necessarily an unhealthy effect, especially for a highly active athlete, but like, you know, as you get bigger, yeah, you should be able to consume more and more because the muscle is going to, you know, is going to dictate that metabolism. And the more muscle you have, the more food you have to eat. Otherwise you're going to be in in a deficit and it's going to cause, you know, like we're talking about some of these hormonal issues or declines in performance or health. Like you you do need to feed like that, that old adage, eat big, train big. Yeah. I mean, that's as simple as it is. Like, you know, push yourself in the gym, push yourself with the food. And plus the food you're describing is really good food. I mean, like eggs, rice, well, steak. Like these, we were these super broke, really high health and, uh, and, and metabolic utility.
1: Yeah. Like we were super broke. Yep. So, uh, eating out, <laughs> like like whenever people are like oh i'm like uh, like eating out was expensive and we didn't have the money for it so it was like going to Costco or price club whatever it was called at the time we would just buy as much as we could and just hope to god that it made it to the very end but the other that's one that's exactly
0: what Stan talks about like it sounds like he's uh he does a monster mash and he's like just buy a rice yeah. cooker yeah. you can cook it right all in the rice cooker yeah. you just have a big vat of meat and rice and all you have to do is measure how many servings you had to have dude, a decent idea of your, uh, your, your Stan's whole your deal,
1: uh, like I, I joked that, uh, uh, well, that whole deal. So my, um, my training partner in college is a guy named Drake Parker. And Drake's from Oahu, a uh, Hawaiian dude uh, from a town called Kaneohe, which is on the west side. And we went and stayed. And his mom had like a rice cooker that just was continuous and like every meal was like uh rice and then uh i had i dude i really like poi so she would put like this bunch of poi on there and then it was either like fish or chicken and everything we ate was buffet style and we would put like uh you know obviously a big plate and his mom was like um like a drug pusher with food she'd be like oh you're not hungry do you want to eat more and it was just like chuk, chuk. So when Stan came out, I was like, you know what? Um, and I think I might have asked him, I'm like, You ever hung out with any Hawaiians? And he's like, he looked and he's like, Yeah, that's where I got this from. I'm like, you gotta have the rice cooker running and then be able to put it together. But man, I uh the 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 other one, which is really interesting for me is is I, I don't know if you subscribed or was like into bodybuilding, but um like when you were younger, uh when we trained at old man Zangus's house and I was like 14, 15, he, uh, advertised in all these bodybuilding magazines for supplement or for a supplement company, which is called Marathon Nutrition. So he had stacks and we would just kind of like look at them in between sets or, you know, whatever we were fucking around. And it was always interesting to me, especially the ones from like the eighties, the amount of carbohydrates that the bodybuilders ate. Like it was nothing for these guys to have six, 800, a thousand grams of carbohydrate. And now when you look at everything, everything's so low carb, uh, I always wonder, um, you know, if, ha- if that anabolic effect with the carbs or maybe it's a change of food, but like, I just don't see, uh, or maybe I don't cause I'm not in the bodybuilding circles like you are like, is that level of carb consumption still pretty prevalent?
0: Oh yeah. Like it, it, at the pro level for sure. I, I think, I think people tend to demonize carbs. I mean, that's kind of been the whole mantra in the past few decades is carbohydrates are the source of all metabolic disease. Yeah. Um, but but there again, there has to be context in there. Be like, yes, if you're a sedentary person with a poor lifestyle, you don't do much and you're just eating chips all day, that's not going to help you. But I think that people also diminish the effect of like carbohydrates. It's like if you're thinking about fuel sources, carbohydrates are your most efficient source of fuel for any kind of physical activity, right? They're rocket fuels. You want to give yourself the, the – it, it's also important for nutrient uptake because – when you raise your blood glucose that's where you're able to get an insulin response to be able to push nutrients into cells so if you're if you're operating let's say in like a positive nitrogen balance meaning like you're eating plenty of protein throughout the day and then you are placing those carbohydrates around let's say your lifting or your practice you're going to rip through those carbohydrates in your training, and it's going to help facilitate muscle protein synthesis because you already have that nitrogen balance in your system. So I think you need to pair it with protein, right? It does. You, you do need to have that positive nitrogen balance. But if you're someone who's who's training hard with volume and intensely, honestly, I think people underestimate the amount of carbs they should be eating. And a lot of times what they're going to do is they're just going to overeat fat. They're going to eat way too much fat. It's going to be bacon wrapped dates and, you know, uh, all, all kinds of stuff like nut butters and all that stuff. And it's not that fat is bad. But the thing about fat is one, it's going to slow your digestion down. So if you're talking about metabolism, that's not going to really help it. And two, it takes a lot of work and time to break down fat. It's not in a very efficient, like, you know, your body needs to work hard to derive energy from it. So it it actually like has the opposite effect of a carbohydrate, you know, carbohydrates, like throwing coals on the fire, throwing the fat on kind of cools that fire down.
1: Mm -hmm. No, it makes sense, dude. I mean, but then, um, You know, when you start ripping out fat, and I know that like, you know, uh, for you, especially in the bodybuilding circles, I mean, you guys cycle through different diets. Like if you're trying to get shredded, you end up dropping the fat up in the carb, up in the protein. But then as you get kind of more into the off season, I know you guys drop the carb up the fat because the fat ends up helping with some of the androgen profile.
0: You know, the fats are relatively consistent, um, slightly different based based on the calories. But like, I don't ever remember in bodybuilding seeing diets with over 100 grams of fat in them. Usually the, the variables you're going to manipulate are going to be protein and carbs. And so you'll either go, I mean, like you're saying, you, you'll go through diets where, you know, if you're a dude like you and you're putting on mass, you probably be eating 700 grams of carbs and 300, 400 grams of protein and probably only 100 grams of fat just for you need the fat for health. You sure. need it for brain health. You need it for cholesterol, right, to, to help your hormones but you don't need to overconsume it. So usually the fat is relatively consistent and the carbs, the carbs and protein are the variables that end up getting manipulated, whether you're in a surplus or, you know, you're not going to get those calories from fat. They're going to, they're going to usually come from carbs.
1: Nice. So uh, what's your prescription on, like, the training stuff? Are you, uh, like, uh, every other day, every day, you know, we talked about, like, uh, one body part a week. Like, how do you really kind of, like, uh, and I know you have different programs on Thunder Bros that are kind of, like, hit a little bit of everything. But, like, your own personal philosophy.
0: Well, I I mean, like, I try to keep it very, um, very broad and understandable for people. Like, all of our programs, the idea behind them is blending performance and aesthetics. So whatever program you're going to do, you're going to get some expression of that, right? Where we're going to be, you know, performing athletic functional movements. Maybe we'll be doing more CrossFit or less CrossFit. It really depends on what you want and how fast you want it. Right? So if you're like, Hey, Dave, I want to put on as much muscle mass as I can in the next 12 weeks, I'll be like, cool. Well, Most of the time we're going to, we're going to focus on heavy lifting volume, right? We're not going to really do a lot of conditioning because that's not going to really serve you in terms of muscle growth. So we don't need to do that. Um, But what we're going to do is probably end up lifting four to five times a week, depending on your ability to recover. For someone who's new to hypertrophy training, I like to put them on a three-day track because they're just not accustomed to that level of muscle breakdown. So, you know, like when you're doing it right, you're going to be sore. So it kind of, it's a night, nice, three days a week is a nice kind of place to begin just to, you know, maybe you still do some CrossFit on the off days, but three days a week, it's dedicated hypertrophy training. And eventually we'll graduate you usually to a five day split. I like the five-day split because you can really hammer body parts very comprehensively and allow for that recovery time. But if you're somebody who's like, hey, I got four days to train, you'll have two upper body days, two lower body days, kind of a push-pull type of split. And you can can get plenty out of it. Honestly, it just depends on the athlete. But that balance of conditioning to hypertrophy work really is going to depend on what they really want. You know, some athletes are like, I'd like to put on some muscle, but I don't want to lose capacity. Be um, like, okay, well, maybe, you know, 75% of your training is hypertrophy and 25% of it might be, you know, GPP kind of conditioning work. I like that blend just for maintenance, because that's what I think like is the sweet spot where you still have imposing physicality, but you can go and run a 10K. You can do a CrossFit workout. Like you have that pliability. Um, once you start training less hypertrophy than that, it's just hard to make any kind of real progress. And once you start doing more conditioning, uh, like you, let's say you're just doing your CrossFit and adding a finisher, you'll see effects to a point, but the idea is to graduate to more of a hypertrophy bias program, because I think, especially when you get to that age where maybe you're not just trying to be the fittest athlete on earth, but you really want to just like look good naked and have, feel strong, be able to do stuff. I think most of the training should be hypertrophy for folks.
1: Do you do uh, a lot of zone one, zone two cardio stuff just uh, for, for your own health and you know maybe yeah. uh, for that?
0: Every morning, every morning. I mean, it goes up and down depending on what the goal is. But I like that just kind of uh, as an anchor for people just to kind of get the ball rolling. It's like get up, get up early, get your cardio in. Usually do it with some branched chain amino acids. That helps. Uh, I mean, I think it helps a lot of things. I think the biggest benefit I see is recovery. Um, and because like the idea of just getting some blood flow and moving is a great way to flush yourself out, uh, and and to lightly work muscles. And oftentimes I'll pair the cardio with what I call depletion work, which is just like light rep or lightweight, high rep weightlifting. So it might be something like four sets of 25 reps with 10 seconds rest across maybe five movements. That's 500 reps. But you'll do like light pull downs, light presses, maybe 45 degrees, like calisthenics level intensity just to move. Um, That's great for waking you up, for stimulating dopamine, great for getting your metabolism going and awesome for recovery. So that's kind of like what I do every morning is I'll usually hit like 15 minutes on a bike or something and do maybe a a 15 minute depletion workout. And then I'm off to breakfast and, and ready to win the day. And then later on in the day, Uh, I'll end up doing like the lifting and that's usually when I have a lot of calories in me. Uh, that's, I think that's the best state when you're fully awake and you're fully fed. That's the best time to lift.
1: Nice. So what's, uh, what's the future hold for, uh, for you and Cammy and for thunder bros.
0: Oh man, we got a lot of stuff going on. So we got our, our, our subscription muscle anarchy is the sign behind me. that's that's our biggest subscription program. We're moving that onto new training platforms. So we're going to be on Train Heroic now and also on Beyond the Whiteboard. And we're also going to start offering it as affiliate programming. And a lot of things we do, like we'll combine these training systems with nutrition systems to have them be like body transformation challenges. So just recently, we started running our 30-day shred challenge in CrossFit gyms where we, you know, provide the nutrition coaching and the training. And then the gym goes through that 30 day challenge, like a fat loss challenge. Um, And then we have some really cool nutrition technology. We're launching this next year with a a really neat um, AI nutrition calculator that does what we do individually with athletes, but all completely automated. So yeah, we got a lot of irons in the fire. You know, I love creating things. I love writing books. I love kind of evolving and coming up with new ideas and methods. And uh, I usually use myself as the Guinea pig. And if I feel like it's, it's really cool, I'll put it out to the athletes. And I've been surprised, like, you know, everything I've done has kind of been a reflection on my journey. Like, Hey, I'm a CrossFitter. I'm kind of broken down. I feel like there's nothing really more for me out there. And then opening up this door into blending it with bodybuilding has been so fun and rewarding. Just being able to feel like you can train hard, but you're not really worried about hurting yourself and you can actually see tangible progress. To me, that's that's just gold. And most of our athletes have that same story. They're just like, you know, they love this stuff, they're lifetime athletes, but they want to, they want to win again in the gym. Um, and we just try to offer them a, a, a way to do that more effectively dude sounds awesome man
1: well dude yeah. uh shit dude that's almost like two hours yeah there we go <laughs> I, I was like dude first of all uh i'm impressed with all uh, every time that i've ever met you and we've spoken or whatever like you're always so stoked like such good energy man so i uh i'm always like is this a fucking act and then i'm like nope i same dave lipson every time i always see him fucking stoked for the world but uh dude that oh, was dude, awesome I, lo- huh?
0: I love this stuff you know like uh we don't really have much of a filter, and I, I'm too I'm too tired to be fake. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the energy to well, put dude, on. a face.
1: I uh, I look forward to either like if uh, if I'm on Tampa or if we can connect, man. I'd love to get together and train with you, and dude. Uh, but man, man, th- thanks for coming on. That was awesome. So if people want to, yeah,
0: we get to get you out here in the backyard doing uh, dude, some fun hypertrophy training.
1: I love to. I love it. So if people want to get a hold of you, uh, Thunder Bros, uh, you know Dave Lipson social.
0: Yeah. So if you go to, uh, you know, our main site is thunderbro.com. So there's no, there's no E in thunder. It's like thunderbro, Dr. Bro. Um, And uh, you can find us at thunderbro, Thunderbro thunderbro.com. I'm at Dave freaking Lipson. you know, if anybody ever has like DMS and I get them all the time, probably just like you, John, people ask me about hormones, about HRT, about training. We now have um, a lot of athletes. We have a whole show prep program for people interested in doing their first show, so it's kind of like I call it the uh, you know, show prep for CrossFitters who want to yeah. still train in their box but are interested in getting on stage. Um, you know, the, the fat loss stuff for us, honestly, I it's funny to me because Thunderbro kind of has a male machismo to it. You know, it's like sling an iron with your bros in the garage. And a lot of people assume it's just for guys, but in our fat loss challenges, we're almost 70% women, and that's hugely popular. We have like a butts awesome. and guts program for the ladies. And the whole idea is like you know, I don't want to I don't want to bash on CrossFit in any way because I think it's got so much value and it's, you know, provided and enriched our lives so much. It's just kind of, again, going back to like, hey, there's context, like we love doing this stuff. We know that all of our athletes love doing it. So we don't want to take them out of the CrossFit gym. We just want to show them ways to be able to maybe train a little bit differently so they can stay in and keep doing the things they love. Because that stuff is like, it's so fun being in a box, in a community. It's so fun practicing these athletic movements. But at a certain point, you know, you got to be a little smarter and, and, uh, and you gotta maybe be a little bit more calculated. Just like when you're young, you can get away with anything. you can like train and eat like an asshole and still make gains. As you get older, you don't have those margins of error quite as much. And a lot of people get discouraged, whether it be from injury or lack of progress that they feel like, you know, it's all downhill from here. And that's just not the case. You just got to learn how to do it better.
1: Awesome. Well, dude, you heard it here first. Thanks for tuning in. Awesome. <laughs> Later. Thanks Dave.